It's time for another edition of Fighting for the Faith. It is Tuesday, July 14th, 2009. And I've got visions of Islam running through my head. It's not Christmas, but I I just say that because... Well, Islam and uh, what Rick Warren has been talking about, or said at the, uh, oh man, just got me thinking. Of course, Rick Warren has a team of uh, PR people working for him, uh, working diligently to try to keep his name from getting too, uh, uh, what's the word I'm looking for, Uh, besmirched uh, by his silly things that he says. So he has uh, quite a bit of money to pay a very high-end PR firm. And I've put a a couple of blog posts up at uh, one of the blogs that I write for, ExtremeTheology.com. And uh, and wouldn't you know it? You know, one somebody from Rick Warren's PR team showed up on the comments section, uh, basically trying to defend you know why Rick Warren was speaking at the uh, Islamic uh, Society of North America and their convention, and it's all about being Christ-like. And uh, you know, it's just got me thinking. We're gonna, I, I might just have to uh, uh, do some work along these lines. Oh, man. Thank you for tuning in, by the way. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. My name is Chris Rosebro, and I am your servant in Jesus Christ, and I am also the chief of sinners. The, that means that I am not here uh, to tell you what a wonderfully righteous person I am. In fact, I am far from it. I'm not righteous at all. Uh, and that's the reason why I need a Savior. Jesus Christ said that he did not come to... Uh, uh, save the uh, or to heal the people who don't need a physician, but to uh, basically save and heal the sick. Uh, that would be me. I am sick with sin. And if you're honest with yourself, then uh, you would also come to the same conclusion. Christianity is not about pulling yourself up by your moral bootstraps and making yourself um, righteous before God. Uh, no, no, you can't do that. If you could do that, then you don't need a savior. If you could do that, then Christ died for nothing. And so uh, that's one of the premises that we work from here at Fighting for the Faith. And what do we do here? We dish up a daily dose of biblical discernment. We compare what people are saying in the name of God to the Word of God. And uh, we engage in biblical study. We comment on the news, and we do a lot of sermon reviews here, almost on a daily basis. Uh, Why? Because it, it provides really for... Uh, for you to hear what goes on inside of my head when I'm listening to a sermon so that you can learn how to think critically and to think biblically about what people are saying in the name of God to the Word of God. And then during the sermon reviews, uh, as necessary, I also engage in a lot of corrective Bible study. So uh, some of you all have a hard time staying through the entire program, especially when it gets to a really rotten um, sermon review. Again, the purpose of the sermon reviews is really to train you to compare, stop the tape, listen to what they're saying, compare what they're saying to the Word of God, and ask yourself, is what they're teaching biblical Christianity? Is it sound doctrine? Does it center on Christ and the proclamation of repentance and the forgiveness of sins in Jesus' name to all nations? If it's not doing that, then we've got a problem. And so, uh, again, this program is not politically correct. I'm not here necessarily to become your buddy. 
And uh, there's plenty of people uh, whom I have uh, made enemies with for the very reason that I've told them the truth. And so uh, it's only fair to warn you. The things that uh, this program could – that I say here on this program could cause you to become supremely dissatisfied with your church. And I don't say that lightly. That's a reality. And I get the emails from listeners on a very regular basis. Not only here in America, but around the world. All right, for today's program, I've got a little bit of email that I'm going to read. And then I'm going to spend a little bit of time um, back on this uh, Rick Warren Islam thing. It seems to be the thing I'm obsessing on and churning on. And it's um, forcing me, if you would, uh, to uh, spend some time in the book of Acts. We recently did a study here where we went through uh, the book of Exodus, uh, really up uh, up to the Mount Sinai experience. And uh, we're going to be looking at the book of Acts uh, today and on into the foreseeable future. And the idea there is to basically, this will be an extended comparison of the things that Rick Warren is saying, uh, really to dive into what did, how did the early church handle evangelism and handle um, itself in the face of opposition from other religions? And sometimes that opposition was violent. And uh, so we're gonna we're gonna be going through the entire book of Acts, and uh, not today, but uh, we'll we'll chop it up into pieces. So today we're gonna begin it, and and then. Uh, <laughs> It's summertime. What does that mean for you seeker-sensitive pastors out there? It means it's time to preach about movies. <sighs> yeah, that's right. And um, and to uh, launch off, you know, to kick off the uh, um, the summer movie uh, sermon series, uh, we've got another Dark Knight sermon. And I picked this one not because he was doing the Dark Knight. In fact, you're you're gonna crack up when you hear how this guy starts off his sermon. Um, but the uh, the subtitle of the sermon is uh, the reluctant leader. Yeah. Um. So I <laughs> should be all kinds of fun. All right. Uh, with that, let's dive into our program proper. I've received an email from uh, Pastor Gervais Nicholas Edward Charmley, um, whom I'm hoping someday to be able to travel across the pond and uh, spend some time in a pub with. And uh, or have a meal and, and just sit down and pick this guy's brain. He just, you know, every time I get an email from him, it is a delight. I see I, when I get an email from Pastor Charm, it's like, oh, I got a pastor. I get an email from him, so I got to pass it along. And uh, he's referring to um, what was being taught at Rob Bell's Poets, Prophets, and Preachers Conference. Um uh, Pastor Charmley says, uh, well, what was being taught at Rob Bell's conference? Answer, pure Gnosticism. This is true. I advise you to compare the notes with the Nag Hammadi library, which, by the way, I happen to own. I have the Nag Hammadi library both on my computer and in a hard book form. And, uh, boy, there's some strange stuff in that Nag Hammadi library, the uh, the gospels of the, uh, the, the, the written... Um, uh, words of the um, Gnostic heretics. We continue. Um, it, he says, um, it, it was declared heretical in the early church, and it still is heretical. Absolutely. The basic concept uh, of um, Gnosticism is that you're not saved by what Christ did for you on the cross, you know, by the fact that God has made you, made it possible for you to be in right standing 
before God on account of the righteousness of Christ and the fact that he propitiated God's wrath, atoned for your sins, uh, punished in your place, you know, all of that kind of stuff. No, 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 that's way, there's way too much uh, negative uh, earthly matter involved in that way of discussing things. In fact, they, the Gnostics, I don't even think they believe that Jesus Christ left any footprints because uh, they believe that matter uh, is evil, and, and, the, and the whole goal of spirituality is to escape matter. Instead, Gnosticism teaches that you are saved by the information that you have, the things that you know. You're saved by gnosis, by knowledge, and the knowledge that they have to teach you is secret knowledge. You see, secrets. And so it always cracks me up when I hear pastors out there telling you uh, that they that they have discovered the you know the three secrets to this or the four keys to that that's gnostic talk anyway we continue uh, so he says gnosticism is still heretical note the emphasis on knowing rather than believing that's correct okay you're not saved by what you know you you are saved by grace through faith and that faith has its focus on Christ and the forgiveness of sins offered to you as a result of the proclamation of the gospel and what Jesus Christ has done. There's a huge difference between knowing and trusting, knowing and believing. Okay, so he says, Note the emphasis on knowing rather than believing. As you know, the word Gnostic means knower. Shane Hips might agree that, quote, I have just spoken about the blessed, imperishable, true God. Now, if anyone wants to believe the words set down here, let him go from what is hidden to the end of what is visible. And, and this a thought will instruct him on how faith in those things that are not visible was found in what is visible. This is a knowable knowledge principle. Uh, uh, okay, so... <sighs> Though the Gnostics are a lot more fun, they are crazier. The fact that the man responsible for this nonsense was an Anabaptist doesn't surprise me, Mennonite. Uh, as Anabaptists have a long history of fanaticism and mysticism. mysticism. As for Mr. Furtick, uh, his allegorical interpretation, that would be the sun stand still prayers, is the first resort of false teachers. Allegorical interpretation is the first result, resort of false teachers. That's uh, what uh, Pastor Charmley says. Though Swedenborg's more fun there as his allegories are completely weird <laughs> uh, thank you pastor charlie for t chiming in you know i'm gonna have to give you a regular spot here on fighting for the faith i just i get that that thinking that i get that uh well we'll we'll deal with that later all right um Okay, so I've written uh, actually like three posts over at ExtremeTheology.com. This whole Rick Warren saying he wants to have some kind of a coalition with Muslims and work together with them to, uh, you know, for the common good, uh, just is so ridiculously naive that uh, you know I've been I've been looking for just the right. A metaphor. Now, yesterday on the program, I asked the question: Is you know Rick Warren, um, you know the the Christian equivalent of Neville Chamberlain? You know, basically naive as they get, you know, and thinking that he can somehow work with uh, Islam, and that Islam has real, really no intention of putting away its militant ways. Well, then again, I yesterday on the program I mentioned Yalta. I think I said Malta in the program, and I was wrong. It's Yalta. 
And uh, if you remember the Yalta Conference, uh, that was near the end of World War II, and it was a meeting between Churchill, uh, Roosevelt, and uh, Stalin. And, you know, again, it's funny is, is that World War II made for some strange bedfellows. Okay, you know, keep in mind, short history of World War II, you know, the World War II really is Act Two of World War One. You know, the, the things didn't quite settle out right. And uh, and so what happens is is that Hitler comes to power in the early 1930s. He rearms Germany, and the world does nothing. Nothing. They do nothing. They, you know, they there was questions, uh, you know, as to whether or not his intentions were evil, or if he was just, you know, trying to restore, the, you know, the lost sense of of German pride that was bruised during World War One. Well, as it turns out, the guy he had every intention of using the military that he was building. And it really, in one quick, fell swoop, I mean, just boom, 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 he takes over all of Western Europe. And, uh, you know, uh, Belgium, France, uh, Holland, uh, you, know, you know, parts of Russia, Poland, uh, they all fall, you know, and, and literally you have all of Western Europe under the boot and enslaved by Nazi Germany. Okay, and he wanted uh, Great Britain, too. You, know, you think of the Battle of Britain. Well, you know, thankfully he didn't uh, send over an invasion force there and thought that uh, uh, the, uh, the the German Air Force uh, was capable of uh, bombing uh, Great Britain into submission and anything. nothing could be further from the truth. Uh, but, I mean, talk about an ag- aggressive, militant uh, man with you know, who is a crazy idealist uh, who was hell-bent on world domination and enslaving everybody in order to uh, make room for the Aryan race. Okay, the, the guy was a complete evil whack job. Well, Stalin wasn't any better. Okay, uh, the co- Soviet Union and its communistic ideology had already pretty much declared that its goal was to take over the entire world. So what happens after World War II? Two, well, not not good things. And so you think about it, the whole Yalta thing is, is probably a better analogy here. Um, so I wrote something yesterday for Extreme Theology. I'm going to read it today and kind of walk you through some of the stuff I've been working on here. Uh, it's called Rick Warren's Yalta Will Also Fail Miserably. Rick Warren's call for Christians and Muslims to, quote, work together for the common good. And inviting Muslims to work with Christians on Rick Warren's, by the way, that's not God's, that's Rick Warren's, not Jesus's, but Rick Warren's global peace plan, uh, will produce the same miserable and failed results as working with the Soviet Union during World War II. Back in the 1940s, the global giant, by the way, that's uh, Rick Warren speak, because, uh, you know, the, the Rick Warren's global peace plan is all about slaying the five global giants. Um, Back in the 1940s, the global giant that the world faced was uh, Nazi Germany and and the United States, Great Britain, and the Soviet Union at that time laid aside their differences. Mm -hmm. They they were not interested, if you would, I'm interjecting here, they were not interested in changing each other's convictions, uh, but they laid aside their differences for a few short years in order to work together for the common good uh, by defeating Hitler in Nazi Germany. But the Soviet Union, after the fall of Germany, worked quickly to re-enslave, uh, to enslave half of Germany and all of Eastern Europe under their oppressive communist system. You think about the, you know, imagine if you were in Poland, if you would. 
I mean, you know, at the outbreak of World War II, Poland is, you know, the first country to really go. And, uh, you know, so they're enslaved and oppressed and, and you know, by the Nazi, uh, by the, uh, the Nazi Germans. And after World War II, um, they remained enslaved, but their slaveholders just changed hands. They went from being slaves of uh, Nazi Germany to being slaves of uh, communist uh, so the, the Soviet Union. The, the, things did not improve whatsoever for Poland um, after World War II. So the goal of liberating Europe was far from achieved as many nations that had been conquered by Hitler were then oppressively enslaved by the Soviet army after the fall of Berlin. But anyone who truly understood Soviet communism could have easily predicted that outcome. Now, if you all have seen the uh, the movie uh, The Band of Brothers um or if you've watched if you watch the history channel, I mean you see you see ideas of this, okay? Uh, there, people talking about it. I mean, after World War Two, you know, it was over. I mean, uh, it, when it was clear that things were not uh, were going to, you know, that Germany was going to fall and the Hitler had committed suicide, uh, the British, uh, the German army, they wanted to surrender to the United States. Uh, it, why? Why were they so interested in, in surrendering to the Brits and to the U.S. rather than to? Uh, uh, to Stalin and his uh, his gang, because they knew the nature of the communists. They knew the nature of the communists. They, they knew that the differences between uh, the U.S. and Britain ideologically were worlds apart from uh, Stalin and the Soviets. And so, I mean, you're talking about tens and hundreds of thousands of German troops uh, taking advantage of kind of a two-day lull, if you would, uh, in in the way this hall went down, so that they could surrender to the U.S. to the Brits, because to surrender to uh, Stalin and the communists was to basically uh, to surrender to slavery for the rest of your life. So uh, you know, any so anyone who truly understood Soviet communism could have easily predicted that outcome. Why? Because global domination was at the heart of Soviet communism. Their clearly stated goal was to take over the world. Now, Rick Warren's naive call for Christians and Muslims to work together for the common good is as equally doomed to failure as working with the Soviets to liberate Europe. Why? Because Islam is a hostile enemy to the gospel and to the freedom and to the freedom to proclaim the gospel in an open marketplace of religious ideas in every muslim nation christians are persecuted and converts to christianity have their very lives threatened and in many cases snuffed out islam is not concerned about achieving the common good for both christians and muslims in fact, they have a very different idea of what the common good is. Islam's goal is defeating infidels and instituting global Sharia law. Muslims don't want to coexist. They want the unconditional surrender and submission of their infidel enemies. And there are many global Islamist groups working toward that end. In fact, I'm going to play for you some audio from Islamic um, leaders uh, that talk about this, them in their own words. Islam is an enemy of Christ and the true gospel. It cannot be bargained with. 
It is merciless and ruthless, and it's attacks against Christianity, Judaism, and Western freedom and democracy. Islam is not a religion of peace. It is a religion of jihad and submission at the end of a sword. And Rick Warren's call for Muslims and Christians to work together on his, not Jesus's, his, not God's, global peace plan will accomplish nothing in removing the sword from the heart and center of Islam. Christians instead are to boldly preach and proclaim repentance and the forgiveness of sins in Jesus' name to Muslims, rather than trying to find common ground with them in order to work for the common good, to abandon this Christian duty given by Jesus Christ to proclaim repentance and the forgiveness of sins in Jesus' name and replace it with working for the common good is both naive regarding the true nature of Islam and rebellious to Christ's explicit instructions given to the church in Luke 24 and Matthew 28. Rick Warren's shallow ideas will not only fail, they already have, uh, they will take their place in the trash can of human history as just another man-made attempt at bringing peace that failed and failed big. Twenty years from now, no one will be talking about Rick Warren's global peace plan, and no one will be discussing the lasting peace between Christians and Muslims that was fostered by Rick Warren's coalition. You know, I know that sounds pessimistic, but you know the reality is is that that's reality. Now, let me back some of this up. There's a there's a gentleman who uh, lives in Great Britain, and he has a blog called Lionheart. And this guy, for the past few years, has been documenting uh, the growing, growing problem of militant Islam in the UK. And um, he, this guy's gotten in trouble with the British government for the things that he's blogged about. Uh, yet he is doing a yeoman's work, really the work of a good Christian soldier, to expose what's going on in the, you know, over there. <laughs> Sound the alarm bell, if you would. But uh, you know, here's some video, uh, some audio from a video. I know you can't see it. Uh, if you want to see this, uh, you can actually go to my blog, ExtremeTheology.com. There's a post there called, Hey, Pastor Warren, have you seen this? And I want you to listen to what this guy's saying. This this is a Muslim cleric. I think his name is Anhem Kudri. Uh, and uh, he's uh, one of the major Islamic leaders, uh, clerics in the UK. And he makes no bones about the fact that their goal is Muslim Islamic domination of the world and, and of, the United, of the United Kingdom. Listen carefully to what he says. So the second is uh, the second thing that will make the Dallas successful is the second one. I'll just repeat about that. The second one, where is my piece of paper gone, is called Tahdeed al to have a clear objective. Our objective, domination of Islam. Okay, listen to what he just said. He says, our objective is the domination of Islam. Islam dominating all of the UK and the world. And the way to achieve that, by implementing the Sharia, having Khalifa. How do we get that? By the Muslims having authority. How do we take authority? The Islamic State, my dear Muslims, will only come via four means. Write them down and remember them. There are only four ways in which the Muslims will take authority. Number one, if the Islamic State is established somewhere else in the world, and they come and they conquer, and they... Okay, so how, how can we achieve Islamic domination? Number one, there's four means, he says. Number one is that an Islamic nation rises up and conquers 
other nations, specifically the UK. This is his ideas. Take the authority. That is a nice way of doing it. For a policy of jihad, that will come and Britain will be under the Sharia. So one of them... They want Britain under the Sharia. Do you hearing that? It's for a policy of jihad. The second way in which the authority can be taken wherever you are in the world is for the people themselves to embrace Islam and for themselves to rise and take the authority. Okay, second is for the people uh, within the UK or any given country to embrace Islam and take the authority. See, Islam is not interested in coexisting with other religions. They want domination. Islam, by the way, I think the word itself means submit. They want to take dom- they want to take and dominate. They are not interested in coexisting or for there to be a free marketplace of religious ideas and for people to, you know, decide for themselves what religion they want. No, they want to take authority and they want to dominate. This guy is saying that. That could happen. It happened in Indonesia. It happened in Abyssinia. In Ethiopia, happened in Malaysia, many countries in the world today don't believe the hype. They say Islam was always spread by the sword. Yes, sometimes it was spread by the sword because we remove the obstacle. Not we force them to become Muslim, but we remove the oppression. But many of the, of the if you like, parts of the Islamic State, they embrace Islam themselves in our history, honestly. Anyway, so that is the mercy for them if the Sharia is implemented. The third way that the authority could be taken is if certain sections of the community overthrow the regime. Like, for example, in Syria and Pakistan, you have military coups every other day. So the other way is for them to have a military coup and for them to overthrow um, the non-Muslim regime in the UK or any given country. They used to have a military coup in Syria. See, this is a possibility here. You know, one possibility is for Great Britain or any of these Western nations to be attacked from the outside by a Muslim nation. Uh, the other is is that people from within embrace Islam and they they get and they take control and give the authority to Islam, or via military coup from within. Are any of you concerned yet? That is the way, in fact, the Messenger Muhammad sallallahu alaihi wasallam did it in Medina. The Hawz and the Khazraj were two tribes in Medina. At that time it was called Yathrib. And they met the Messenger Muhammad sallallahu alayhi wa at Al-Aqaba. And he said, I want from among you 12 Luqaba, 12 Naqibs, 12 people in charge over their military. He said, meet me after two-thirds of the night. Whoever is sleeping, he said, don't wake him up. They met together, they formulated the plan for the coup in Medina. And they did military coup. And even the head of Medina at that time, the king who was king there before, he said this one was hatched, he said in the middle of the night. And he was absolutely right. It was a military coup. You know how many people there were in Medina at that time? They said about 15 to 20,000. And uh, the whole population of the Muslims was uh, about 5 or 10% of it. Meaning there were a very small proportion of it. The, the whole of the Muslim population in Makkah were only 200 people who made Hijrah. <laughs> Notice he's saying that the population was only 5 to 10% there in Medina, and they had a successful military coup against the non-Muslim uh, government there. Uh, any of you living in Britain might be concerned uh, in case the Muslim population there gets above 5%. A small number. You don't need to have large numbers. When the people are convinced that this is good for them, they will embrace it and adopt it themselves. Who cannot differ with the Islamic law and order? Honestly, yesterday I said, look, forget the fact that it's called Sharia. 
under the Islamic State, everyone's food, clothing and shelter will be provided. But we don't feel sorry for them, obviously. Let them go down, brother. And if there was an earthquake as well, and they fell, we wouldn't be sorry, really. Funny thing, everyone in the Jummah Khutbah, they always make dua, may Allah let the buildings fall on their heads, may he shake the ground, everything. And when it happens, they go, subhanAllah, look at that. But so sad. Because, I go that, every Jummah, he's making dua, say, may Allah shake the ground, the buildings fall on their heads. When it happens, they go, I can't believe it. It actually happened. <laughs> Honestly, they say, they say. Yeah, notice that if uh, you are non-Muslim and you live in a country that's not Muslim and uh, there's an earthquake and the buildings fall on your head, the Muslims sit there and go, well, uh, Allah caused that to happen. Anyway, so the second one, brother, the third thing to make the da'wah successful is mujahid mentality. Fourth one. No, no, you're probably going to be taking part of my second point, brother. Oh, the fourth one, yeah, the fourth, very good, yeah. Yeah, this the is fourth his fourth point. one. Here's his fourth point. The, the fourth way it's going to happen is if uh, jihad began, began here, like in Kosovo or Bosnia, somewhere like that. So jihad began here. Apparently there's a difference between a military coup and jihad. And the people came from another area to support us. And, and then people come from another area to support the overthrow of the British government or the infidel government so that then they can overthrow it and bring about... Islamic domination and the imposition of Sharia law. Eventually, overthrew. Like what's happening in Iraq and Afghanistan is happening like that. It could happen. The people did not. Many people want you to believe that the jihad, for example, in Iraq and Afghanistan is because they wanted to take power. That is nonsense. They came there to defend the life and the honor and to deal with the kuffar who were present. If eventually they come into power, fair enough. But don't fool yourself to say, actually, the jihad in Iraq is to take the authority. Therefore, jihad is the means to achieve that. Therefore, in England, we should just be declaring jihad. That's not the case at all. In England, we have Aqd al-Aman. We have covenant of security. The life and the wealth of the people with whom we live is secure. Okay, I think we've heard enough from this particular soundbite. We're going to take a quick break. You know, so the, my question is... Uh, how is it that uh, having a coalition between Christians and Muslims to work on Rick Warren's, not God's, but Rick Warren's, not Jesus's, but Rick Warren's global peace plan, you know, to slay the five global giants, uh, uh, spiritual emptiness, poverty, illiteracy, corrupt uh, government, things like that. Um, would you want to work side by side with a guy like this to help, you know, slay those common enemies, you know, and to bring to work with the common good? Do you, how would that make them get rid of their doctrine of the global domination, the global domination of Islam, and for them to give up their ideology of uh, imposing Sharia on the entire world? I'm just not seeing that happening. Are you saying I'm, I'm not seeing it happening? Hmm. Again, I think Rick Warren's plans are highly misguided and does not understand the true nature of Islam. And I'm not giving some mischaracterization uh, based upon my Christian bias. I'm playing for you audio from an Islamic cleric. Oh, man. Anyway, uh, if you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard so far, you can. Talk back at fightingforthefaith.com talk back at fightingforthefaith.com or you can look me up on Facebook or follow me on Twitter we'll be right back
No itching ears are scratched here. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. It's Marty Python's Flying Circus Church. Thank you for downloading Rob Bell's Lectio Divina. This is a resource made available by Mars Hill Bible Church in Grand Rapids, Michigan. Lectio Divina is an ancient spiritual practice from the Christian monastic tradition, and in Lectio Divina we seek to experience the presence of God through reading and listening, prayer, meditation, and contemplation. Lectio Divina can be done as an individual or a group. Are you ready to begin? Yes, I guess I am. All right. Begin by choosing a section of scripture that you would like to read and pray. You can choose the text randomly, or use a liturgical book like the Book of Common Prayer. Try not to set a goal for how much content you will cover. The goal is to listen for and experience God and His presence. Um, I guess I'll go randomly then. Eeny, meeny, miny, moe, catch a scripture by its toe. If it's gospel, let it go. Eeny, meeny, miny, moe. Preparation for Lectio Divina. Next, do what you must to quiet and prepare yourself to hear from God. If you need to find a quiet room or sit in silence for several minutes or sit in a comfy chair, take whatever posture will help you prepare to receive and experience God's presence. Okay, let's see. I've got my comfy chair and... Oh, no. You out there! For to experience the presence of God if you are using a jackhammer. Shut up! Don't sorry about that, ma'am. Yeah, you better be sorry! Next, when you sense that your heart is prepared, begin by slowly reading the passage of Scripture that you have selected. Don't move too quickly through any sentence or phrase, and as you read, pay attention to what word or phrase or idea catches your attention. Okay, I don't know when I'm supposed to be ready. There's no, no, no kind of timer on me. Anyway, um, the passage of scripture. Judas hung him, himself. Judas hung himself. Judas hung himself? Next, begin to meditate on the word, phrase, or idea that captured your attention. Repeat it again and again. Hung himself. Hung himself. Hung himself. What thoughts come to mind as you meditate on this word, phrase, or idea? Suicide? What are you reminded of in your life? Um, an early death? What does it make you hope for? A different passage of scripture? Next, begin to speak to God. Tell God what word, phrase, or idea captured your attention and what came to mind as you meditated upon it. Lord, the phrase was... Judas... Hung himself. It's not a good feeling. How is God using this word, phrase, or idea to bless and transform you? How should I know that? Tell God what you have been thinking and feeling as you've listened and meditated. I'm feeling depressed. Tell God how you hope this word, phrase, or idea will change your heart to be more like his. This is rubbish! A complete waste of my time. I could be out trimming the petunias or burying the cat or something. If I'm going to experience God, I'm going to do it the old-fashioned way. Just open the Bible and read it. 
Don't be so silly and modern. Everybody knows that you can't experience God that way. Orthodox Christianity clearly teaches God's law, which condemns our sinful nature, and clearly proclaims the gospel of Christ's death and resurrection on our behalf to pay for our sinfulness. These truths of Holy Scripture are timeless and objective. However, a creeping fog known as the emergent church threatens to unravel these clear teachings by redefining the vocabulary and core beliefs of the Christian faith in terms of subjective personal feelings and experiences. That is why Pirate Christian Radio is proud to offer The Emergent Church, Undefining Christianity, a book by Bob DeWay that is widely regarded as the best book available on the emergent heresy. The book is $12.95 plus $4 shipping and handling, and all proceeds directly support the Christ-centered ministry of Pirate Christian Radio. Log on today to piratechristianradio.com and order your copy of The Emergent Church, Undefining Christianity. We're back. Hmm. I tell you, you know, you got to be careful. I mean, I understand the desire to uh, have peace, not live at war. You know, not have the threat of somebody uh, picking you off with a rifle or blowing up or, you know, sending a suicide bomber into the... uh, uh, the place where you're eating a meal. See, the thing is, is that uh, we as Christians, the church is called to do a very specific thing, called to proclaim repentance and the forgiveness of sins in Jesus' name to all nations. That includes Muslim nations. And understand, you know, the guy that we played, the cleric that we played, we're going to play a little bit more of him in a minute here. Uh, he is not. He is not like he represents the Westboro Baptist version of Islam. I think his his what he is saying is far more in keeping with really the heart and nature of Islam uh, than what you see with the Westboro Baptist folks. I mean, Westboro Baptist folks, they're a bunch of nuts. You know, they're almost practically like a cult the way they behave and act. Okay, whereas, you know, what we're seeing in Islam here, this militant idea, of, this goal of Islamic domination of, a, of the world and every individual nation, uh, that's not an aberrant teaching. That's really at the heart and soul of what Islam is all about, imposing Sharia law on all the world. They have always been on the attack, if you would. And uh, in North Africa and the, and the Middle East fell to a militant Islam. Anyway, need to remind you, Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means uh, your financial support is vital. It's critical. It's necessary. It's uh, undeniably, uh, absolutely needed in order for us to continue bringing Fighting for the Faith to you. And you can support us a few different ways. Uh, You can visit our website, fightingforthefaith.com, and click on one of our friendly yellow donate buttons. That allows you to instantly send in your, uh, your gift uh, it, and it, it's instantly available. It's done securely online using the Internet. It's a fast and easy way to do it. Uh, the other way you can do it is you can uh, make your gift check payable to Fighting for the Faith and send it to Post Office Box 508 Fishers, Indiana, zip code four. 
888-528-6038. Now, I'm gonna, I want to play for you a little bit more of this, uh, this Muslim cleric here. And uh, after the, uh, the bombings in, uh, in Great Britain, uh, this guy uh, appeared on a, a British program. And I want you to listen carefully to what he says and ask yourself, I mean, is this really the religion of peace? Is this a misunderstood religion here? And how exactly is uh, creating a coalition of Muslims and Christians working together you know, to uh, fulfill Rick Warren's, not God's, but uh, Rick Warren's, not Jesus's, uh, but Rick Warren's global peace plan supposed to solve the problem of, uh, of a militant Islam and their view of other uh, people who are in other religions? Listen carefully. See if you can just feel the love coming uh, from this Muslim cleric here. I just wonder why you won't condemn it when your own leader, Omar Bakri, said quite simply, I condemn... Condemning what? It's condemning the bombings that took place in Great Britain a couple of years ago. Condemn the killing of innocent people on the 20th of July. Yeah, why won't you say what he said? Look, at the, at the end of the day, innocent people, when we say innocent people, we mean Muslims. As far as uh, non-Muslims are concerned, they have, uh, they have not accepted Islam. As far as we're concerned, that is a crime against God. I want but, to be clear about uh, what you're as, saying. As this as is very important. You're no, saying let me, only Muslims let me just can count let me as count. innocent people. As far as Muslims are concerned, you're innocent if you, if you are a Muslim, then you're innocent in the eyes of God. If you are a non-Muslim, then you're guilty of not believing in God. Yes, there were many victims. You're guilty. They're, guilty. They're, they're guilty are you seriously suggesting that everybody on those tube trains and on that bus in London on July the 7th was in some way a legitimate target you don't allow me to answer the question fully Stevie. you're never going to get to oh he really did already answer the question here uh <laughs> he already did answer the question he, he hated the fact that there were innocent people who died and the the innocent people who died were the muslims everybody else they'd already committed a crime against god by not submitting to islam so they got what they deserved. Let me let me begin by saying, as a Muslim, you must have allegiance where the Sharia says that you have allegiance. You must hate and love for the sake of Allah. You must praise and dispraise for what the Sharia says. You praise and dispraise. So, as a Muslim, I must support my Muslim brothers and sisters wherever they are in the world. I must have allegiance with them. I must cooperate with them. I must love them. And similarly, on the other hand, I must have hatred towards everything which is non-Islam. You know what? I'm, I'm trying not I to interrupt have... you too much, but, yeah, but I still I'm don't coming, feel I'm you have you. I'm going to come on to your point. I'm going to come on to your point. Were people on the underground trains and on the bus legitimate I'm, targets I'm, I'm because they come, were not Muslim? I'm coming on to your point. You've asked, some you've asked of them about, actually were. No, no, you've asked about two or three different uh, different questions. You've asked about innocence. You've asked about whether they were legitimate targets. You've asked about whether I'm condoning or condemning. You've asked about whether I praise. We've them. moved on those from questions, that. No, I've asked you a questions, very simple question. All of those questions deserve to be answered. And obviously we have the time to explore them. So if I just continue with this particular point, as far as Muslims are concerned, their allegiance is always with the Muslims. So I will never condemn a Muslim for, for what he does. Indeed, I'm, I, I must stand with him whether he's an oppressor or oppressed. Sheikh Bakri declared Britain to be Dar al-Harb, which basically means a land of war, a land Britain's where... It's always been Dar al-Harb. It's always been Dar al-Harb. Dar al-Harb is a place where there is non-Islamic law. The whole world today is Dar al-Harb. Dar al-Harb the point about being a land which is Dar al-Harb is that you and your group Therefore, feel you have license to conduct violent Maybe. operations within it. That's right. They have the Muslims think that they have a right to conduct violent operations within a a, a land where Sharia law and Islam is not dominating. Is 
that the whole world is Darul Haram. There are certain areas where the Muslims are actively so why liberating the land. So why on the 18th of January did, did Omar Bakri declare Britain to be Darul Haram? If it's always been the case, it's why did he Dar choose to say it? Yeah, because you never, you never bothered to listen to him before. But the fact is that Britain changed from being Darul Haram to being Darul Fitna. Darul Fitna is a place where the Muslims no longer have sanctity for their life and their wealth. That was the change. Otherwise, Britain has always been Darul Haram. When Zawahri has said... All right, I think you get the point of what's going on here. Um, folks, you know, listen, Islam is a militant enemy of Christianity. It is a militant enemy of every other religion, and they are actively offensive in, I mean, offensive, and they mean as opposed to defensive. They're actively offensive in trying to bring the world under the domination of Islam and Sharia. This is their stated goal. This is at the heart of what they do. And they don't consider to be people outside of Islam even worthy of being treated with respect. Uh, militant Islam calls Jews, they call the Jews uh, pigs and dogs. Rick Warren he has to understand this. It is not a mischaracterization to speak these things of Islam. This is truly the nature of Islam and how they behave towards other people. What they don't realize is, is that you know Islam, the Muslim nation, everybody in Islam, everybody in a Muslim nation needs to hear the gospel of Jesus Christ, that Christ died for their sins, and that they are following a false and demonic God. The God they follow is not the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. It is a twisted, demonic, and evil God that they follow, and that they are literally still under God's wrath. And the good news is that Christ has died even for the sins of Muslims. Therefore, they must be called to repent and trust in Christ for the forgiveness of their sins. Now, I bring all of this up because that's the nature of Islam. Now, uh, one of Rick Warren's, uh, one of the people who works for Rick Warren's uh, PR group, uh, stopped by uh, ExtremeTheology.com and left a comment today, and uh, pointing me to something that Rick Warren has written. And I've got to correct the errors in this, and then we're going to dive into the Book of Acts and then get into our sermon review. So, stay with me today. Um, this is from Rick Warren's, uh, Pastor Rick's News and Views, and uh, it was written June 26, 2009, so this was a, uh, about a week prior to his appearance at the Islamic Society of North America, okay? And uh, so he, this is Rick Warren's reasoning for speaking to the group that he did. Now, here's the deal. I want to make something clear up front. I don't have a problem with Rick Warren appearing before Muslims or before any other religious group whatsoever. That's not the issue. The issue is, is that he didn't bring Christ and him crucified for our sins. He, in fact, Rick Warren, when he met, he, when he spoke with Islam, made it clear, we played the audio, that he wasn't there to change their convictions. He's just interested in having some interfaith projects with, you know, 
with Muslims, think, somehow thinking, naively thinking that that's, you know, by working with the Muslims for the common good, that that's going to change the nature of Islam. Again, but that's like expecting that working with the Soviet Union uh, to solve the common good uh, problem of uh, Nazi Germany would somehow change the nature of Soviet uh, Soviet communism. It didn't. And right after uh, uh, Berlin fell, the, the Soviets enslaved all of Eastern Europe. Countries that had been conquered by the Nazis were then whisked up and conquered, reconquered by uh, the Soviet Union. Working for the, quote, common good didn't change the nature of communism. Working for the common good with, quote, Muslims is not going to change the nature of Islam. They need to be told to repent and trust in Christ for the forgiveness of their sins. Believe it or not, that's really Christianity's only weapon. Is the real is the preaching of the gospel and the preaching of law and gospel, and it's a powerful weapon. Not because our words are somehow great, or because we can speak it with charisma. Baloney. The reason why that is such a powerful weapon is because through the preaching of the gospel, God does His thing. I don't know how He does it. He just says that He does. I'm bound to these to the simple. Foolish preaching of the gospel. And yet God promises through the proclamation of the gospel that what does he do? He drives people to repentance and gives them the gift of faith to trust in Christ for the forgiveness of their sins. Completely radically changes them from the inside out. Amazing, isn't it? So that's really our weapon. Not We don't need bombs or swords. It's ridiculous. Okay, Christ hasn't given us bombs and swords. Christ has given us the preaching of the good news. And it's through the preaching of the good news. Romans ten seventeen. Faith comes by hearing. Hearing through the word of Christ. That's our weapon. The big bomb of Christianity. Right? And uh, Rick Warren uh, refuses to wield that weapon with Muslims. Let me read now from his uh, Pastor Rick's News and Views. <clears throat> Dear Saddleback family, there is always so much news to share with you. Let me start with the views uh, before I share the news. Viewpoint building a Christ-like ministry. We often receive letters asking, why is Pastor Rick speaking to this or that group? It's a great question that I want you to know the answer to. You may have noticed that outside of Saddleback Church and our 30-year purpose-driven ministry to pastors, I do very little speaking to Christian groups of believers. Instead, I invest my time speaking to groups of unbelievers that, that... that most pastors never get the opportunity to share with. These are folks that Jesus died for, but would never enter a church to hear the good news. Jesus says it's not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. If you want to have a Christ-like ministry, you have to associate with the people Jesus did, unbelievers. Rick, again, I'm commenting here on Rick Warren's statement. I don't have a problem with you speaking to these groups. My problem is, is you don't actually bring the gospel when you show up. The gospel is um, mysteriously missing, and your ideas are um, suspiciously uh, you-centered. <clears throat> we continue. Of course, this strategy upset the religious legalists and self-righteous pundits in Jesus' days, as and it does today, too. Rick, I don't have a problem with you speaking to him. Bring the gospel when you show up, though, will you? 
Every time I speak to a non-Christian group, I get criticized by well-meaning believers who don't really understand how much Jesus loves lost people. Uh, Rick, I, I get it. it Scripture is clear. In that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for the ungodly. Rarely would a man die for a good person, but Christ shows his love for us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. You see what I'm saying? I get that. Uh, they are more concerned with their own perceived purity than the salvation of those Jesus died for. No, Rick, actually, I'm very concerned about the salvation of the people that you talk, for, talk to. Very concerned. Why? Because over and over and over again, from the TED conference to your conversations with several Muslim groups, you don't bring the message of the gospel, the good news that Christ died for their sins, and you don't call them to repentance. And trust in Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. So this is really kind of a red herring argument on your part. I mean, if you were out there vigorously proclaiming Christ and him crucified for their sins, I would actually be sitting there going, do it, man. Go for it. I'm praying for you. I'm with you. But you don't do that. <clears throat> Let me continue with Rick Warren's statement. Both Jesus and Paul were very strategic in who they spoke to, what they said, and how they said it. Jesus used a style of speaking unlike any of the religious professionals. Quote, the common people heard him gladly. The NIV translation of this verse says, the large crowd listened to him with delight. If Jesus preached today, a lot of uh, professors and preachers would criticize his communication style. But he said, the father who sent me commanded me to, uh, commanded what to say and how to say it. So I've been studying Jesus' sermon style for 35 years and more, and the more I learn how he said things amazes me at, at his insight into human behavior and receptivity. Uh, Rick, uh, we've reviewed your sermons and your speaking style here at uh, Fighting for the Faith. Uh, you and Jesus, worlds apart in how you preach. Christ actually called people to repentance Read your Bible. It's, in fact, if you looked up the term repentance in a computerized Bible, you'd find it a lot in the, the uh, repent. You'd find it in the red letters. It seems to be mysteriously missing from your communication style. And Jesus never twisted God's word, which you seem to do incessantly. We continue with Rick Warren's uh, letter. Uh, no one is ever converted by labeling condemnation or anger. James 1.20 in the King James says, For the anger of man does not achieve the righteousness of God. We must love people into God's family and overcome evil with good. Again, Jesus is our model. He said, If anyone hears me and doesn't obey me, I am not his judge, for I have come to save the world and not to judge it. And so John twelve forty seven judgment will come later if we want to have a Christ-like ministry. We must not waste any time judging unbelievers. Jesus didn't. Uh, but instead, do everything we can to build relationships of love and respect and trust with unbelievers. For many unbelievers, the barrier to salvation is not the credibility of Jesus, but our own lack of credibility and love for them. Rick. Oh, again, um, Jesus his stump speech, his standard stump stump speech, was repent. Yeah, Jesus, oh man, you know, hey, hang on a second here. Do it, I got to do a little biblical work here. Oh, man, I tell you, it just is amazing to me. Repent, I'm going to put a wild card into my computerized search here. Whoops, I got to do a word search, and I'm going to look in the New Testament 
And I want to do this in this translation. Here we go. And no context to start off with. Okay, let's see. Um, Matthew 4.17. Let me get the context now. Matthew 4.17 is the verse I want to focus in on for a second. Um, It says, uh, From that time Jesus began to preach, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Okay, so Matthew 4, 17 records for us the fact that Jesus from that time, basically from the beheading of John the Baptist, um, he um, he began, or not the beheading, but the arresting of John the Baptist, he began preaching, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Um, let me see here. Then Jesus began to denounce the cities where most of his mighty works had been done because they did not repent. This is Matthew 11, verse 20. Uh, Woe to you, Chorazan! Woe to you, Bethsaida! For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. Uh, Well, uh, that kind of blows that apart there. Uh, And and I tell you, it would be more bearable on the day of judgment for Tyre and Sidon than for you. And you, Capernaum, will you be exalted to heaven? Will Will you be brought down to Hades? For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Sodom, it would have remained to this day. But I tell you that it will be more tolerable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom than for you. You know, I think Jesus is being awful negative there. Um, Okay, so Jesus apparently... uh, Notice that Jesus... uh, Rick Warren here. Let me... In light of what we just heard Jesus say... Um, let me, let's read this again. Uh, see, cause we just have Jesus right here denouncing the cities where most of his mighty works have been done because they did not repent. That's a Matthew 11, uh, verses 20 through 24 is what I read. Um, and yet it's uh, Rick Warren says no one is ever converted by labeling condemnation or anger. Uh, for the ang- uh, uh, we must love people into God's family and overcome evil with good. Judgment will come later. If we want to have a Christ-like ministry, we must not waste any time judging unbelievers. Let me read this now. Paul's strategy was the same as Jesus' approach. I happily become a servant of any and all so that I can win them to Christ. When I am with the Jews, I become like one of them so that they will listen to the gospel and can uh, win them to Christ. When I am with the Gentiles, I don't argue even though I don't agree because I want to help them. Uh, when uh, With the heathen, I agree with them as much as I can, except, of course, that I must always do what is right as a Christian. And the, Apparently, this is from a, some kind of a paraphrase when i am with those whose consciences bother them easily i don't act as though i know it all and don't say they are foolish the result is that they are willing to let me help them yes whatever a person is like i try to find common ground with him so that he will uh he will let me help tell him about christ and let christ save him i do this to get the gospel to them and also for the blessing i myself receive when i see them come to christ Rick, again, the problem is not that you uh, speak to Muslims. The problem is is that when you do, you don't bring Christ and him crucified. And in your, we p- played the audio from your uh, from both of your Muslim, uh, you know, speaking to your two different Muslim groups, the one in Long Beach earlier at the, really the end of last year, and then at Isna. 
neither time did you do what Jesus or Paul did, and that's proclaim repentance and the forgiveness of sins in Jesus' name. In fact, you told the Muslims you just want to uh, work on interfaith projects with them. Like that's going to solve anything. So, Rick, no, you're twisting God's word, and no, you're not telling us really what God's word is about at all. At all. You're, and you're not bringing the gospel to these people. And, yeah, you're showing them love, but you're not showing them enough love to tell them the truth, which is what the apostles did. Now, when we get back from the second break here, I'm going to begin our next Bible series, if you would, and we're going to work our way through the entire book of Acts. And we're going to basically work from the assumption that the apostles... Um, are the ones who, having been taught by Jesus Christ how to go out and do Christ-like ministry and evangelism, got it right. And so we're going to compare what they did to uh, what Rick Warren is claiming that should be done. So, yeah, anyway, so uh, we're up on our second break. If you would like to email me regarding anything you've heard, you can at talkback at fightingforthefaith.com. Hey, by the way, tomorrow I'm going to be interviewing... um, uh, one of the gals from uh, Westboro Baptist Church. Ought to be interesting. Uh, if you want to email me, talk back at fightingforthefaith.com or ask to be my friend on Facebook or follow me on Twitter. My name there is Pirate Christian. We'll be right back. We don't need to rethink Christianity. We need to rediscover it. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. Orthodox Christianity clearly teaches God's law, which condemns our sinful nature, and clearly proclaims the gospel of Christ's death and resurrection on our behalf to pay for our sinfulness. These truths of Holy Scripture are timeless and objective. However, a creeping fog known as the emergent church threatens to unravel these clear teachings by redefining the vocabulary and core beliefs of the Christian faith in terms of subjective personal feelings and experiences. That is why Pirate Christian Radio is proud to offer The Emergent Church, Undefining Christianity, a book by Bob DeWay that is widely regarded as the best book available on the emergent heresy. The book is $12.95 plus $4 shipping and handling, and all proceeds directly support the Christ-centered ministry of Pirate Christian Radio. Log on today to piratechristianradio.com and order your copy of The Emergent Church, Undefining Christianity. All right, we're back. Hour number two of Fighting for the Faith. Yeah, tomorrow on the program, got the email confirmation today. I'm, I've got a, I'm going to be recording this earlier before I go on the air. But I have an interview with Shirley Phelps Roper. Uh, she's the daughter of uh, Fred Phelps, and uh, we'll be uh, interviewing her tomorrow. Basically, I, uh, I asked for an interview with the folks from uh, Westboro Baptist Church. Specifically to uh, to talk about the theology behind uh, what it is that they're doing, so I plan on uh, asking questions really to kind of get it to the heart. Let them speak about uh, the theology that's driving their uh, uh, their protests and the and, and and the highly offensive 
uh, signs that they put up in the picket, you know, the picketing that they do that's got everyone all upset. And uh, with any luck, we'll be able to do a little long gospel with uh, Shirley Phelps Roper tomorrow. So looking forward to that. It ought to be interesting. All right. Uh, let's see here. Uh, m- moving along to our n- next segment. Today we're going to begin um, a-, a series. Basically, we're gonna we're gonna work through the entire book of Acts. Uh, we're, and we're going to do it in large segments, probably more than a chapter at a time. And we're going to work from the, this basic concept. If anybody, uh, if anybody understood what it is that Jesus wanted the Christian church to do and how to evangelize the world, it would have been the apostles. Okay. Uh, even the apostle Paul, if you read Galatians, makes it clear that he got his theology by direct revelation from Jesus Christ. Okay. So the things that they were doing, uh, really represented and reflected how Jesus wanted things done when it came to evangelizing the world. And evangelizing the world, that's an interesting term. We kind of lose sight of the fact of what that really means. Evangel, good news. We're supposed to go out and good news the world. We're supposed to go out and proclaim the good news. Uh, the forgiveness of sins in Jesus Christ. Christ dies for our sins. So evangelizing really is about going out and proclaiming the good news. And so we work from the idea that uh, if if anybody was got it, it was those guys. Okay. Now, the book of Acts itself is part two of a document that was really uh, it was written by Luke. Luke was not, he doesn't claim to be an eyewitness uh, to Jesus's life. However, he claims that he uh, basically inv- invo- involved himself in a ca- careful study and interviewed the eyewitnesses of Jesus' life and ministry before he wrote the Gospel of Luke. And so it's based on eyewitness testimony. He's really kind of an investigative reporter, if you would, uh, an investigative biographer. And uh, so uh, Luke's Gospel you know, ends with Christ ascending into heaven. Well, it doesn't end there, but it, it, his his gospel, the Gospel of Luke, the ending of Luke, is where I really want to pick up before we dive into the Book of Acts, because the Book of Acts is part two of all of this. And so, you know, I keep referring back to these passages, uh, but uh, you know, what happens is in Luke twenty four, we have Jesus's road to Emmaus. You know, uh, he breaks the bread; they dis- he disappears. And what happens is they return to let everybody know that they had seen the risen Lord. And then we pick up at Luke 24, verse 36. It says this, And as they were walking about these, uh, talking about these things, Jesus himself stood among them and said to them, Peace to you. Uh, but they were all started, startled and frightened and thought that they had seen a ghost. And he said to them, well, Why are you troubled? And why did doubts arise in your hearts? See my hands and my feet. It is I myself. Touch me and see, for I... For a spirit does not have flesh and bones, as you see that I have. So proving his bodily resurrection. And when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. And while they were, they still disbelieved for joy, they were marveling. And he said to them, have you anything here to eat? And they gave him a piece of broiled fish and he took it and ate before them. And then he said to them, these are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, uh, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. And he opened their minds to understand the scriptures and said to them, Thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead and that repentance and the forgiveness of sins be proclaimed in his name to all nations, beginning in Jerusalem. 
You are my witnesses of these things, and behold, I am sending the promise of my Father upon you, but stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. And then he led them out as far as Bethany, and lifting up his hands, he blessed them. And while he blessed them, he parted from them and was carried up into heaven, and they worshipped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy, and they were continually in the temple blessing God. So here, you know, Luke's gospel ends with uh, Jesus ascending into heaven, but then he writes a follow-up, which is the book of Acts. And so we pick up in Acts uh, chapter 1, and we begin our uh, study of Acts proper. And you'll notice this as we get later into the book of Acts, uh, that Luke uses uh, the first-person plural, we. He's he's an eyewitness to some of the events that took place in the book of Acts, especially on Paul's missionary journeys. But we'll get, we'll get to that later. So, again, listen carefully. We're, we're going to watch to see how the gospel spreads, how the good news and uh, of Christ crucified for our sins spreads, how the Christian church grows. And we're going to work from the, pre- uh, the basic premise that this is normative. To depart from this is, uh, is, is suicidal for the Christian church. Here we go. In the first book, O Theophilus, I have, dealt, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day that he was taken up and after he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. He presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. And while staying with them, He ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he had said, You heard from me. For John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, It's not for you to know the times or the seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the very ends of the earth. So Jesus, here, <laughs> they're all concerned. Hey, yo, are you going to restore the kingdom to Israel? And Jesus is like, <laughs> they failed the final on the day. <laughs> on the day Jesus is ascending into heaven, they failed the final. But what does he tell them to do? To be his witnesses. Witnesses of him, not witnesses of them. Witnesses of him. And when he had said all these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up, and a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven, as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes. And he said, Men of Galilee, and they said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus, who was taken up from you into heaven, will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. Then they returned to Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day's journey away. And when they had entered, they went up to the upper room where they were staying, Peter and John and James and Andrew, Philip and Thomas and Bartholomew and Matthew, James the son of Alphaeus and Simon the zealot and Judas the son of James. All of these were with one accord, were devoting themselves to prayer together with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus and his brothers. In those days, Peter stood up among the brothers. The company of persons was in all about 120 and said, Brothers, the scripture had to be fulfilled, 
which the Holy Spirit spoke beforehand by the mouth of David concerning Judas, who became a uh, a guide to those who arrested Jesus. For he, he was numbered among us and was allotted his share in this ministry. Now this man acquired a field with the reward of his wickedness, and falling headlong he burst open in the middle and all his bowels gushed out. And it became known to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, so that the field was called, in their own language, Akadelma, that is, the field of blood. For it is written in the book of Psalms, May his camp become desolate, and let there be no one to dwell in it, and let another take his office. So one of the men who had accompanied us during all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and in and out among us, uh, beginning from the baptism of John until the day when he was taken up from us, one of these men must become with us a witness to his resurrection. Now, I want to point something out here. There's a lot of people nowadays who who claim that there are modern-day apostles. But listen carefully to what's going on here. Is, is the, the, the apostles were numbered 12. They were chosen by Christ. And... Um, Judas betrays Jesus and then you know hangs himself and his you know and his body falls off a cliff and his guts go everywhere. Lovely end. And um, and so they look into scriptures and the scriptures you know they interpret the scriptures that uh, they that they uh, let another one take his office. And um, in fact, let me find that passage. What is he quoting from? Um, uh, cited from Psalm nineteen. Uh, verse 8. Interesting. Okay, so anyway, um, so the requirements for the apostle for an apostle are very clear. It is somebody who was there at Jesus' ministry beginning when Jesus was, from the baptism of John, until he was, from when he was baptized by John the Baptist until the day that he was taken from them. So somebody, somebody who was a witness of the whole thing, not just part of Jesus' ministry, but the whole thing, one of these men must become a witness uh, to his resurrection. And so they put forward two, Joseph called Barsabbas, who was also called Justice, and Matthias. And they prayed and said, You, Lord, who knows the hearts of all, show which one of these you have chosen uh, to take the place in this ministry and apostleship from which Judas turned aside to go to his own place. And they cast lots for them, and the lot fell on Matthias. And then he was numbered with the eleven apostles. Okay, so, you know, then, by the way, requirements for apostle, nobody can meet those uh, requirements nowadays. There ain't no such thing as a modern-day apostle. Uh, Acts 2, 1. When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place, and suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting, and divided tongues as a fire appeared to them and rested on each of them, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven, and at this sound the multitude came together, and they were bewildered because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. And they were amazed and astonished, saying, 
Are not all those who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that we hear each of us in his own native language, Parthenians and Medes and Elamites and residents of Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phygria, Pamphylia, Egypt and all parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene and the visitors of Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabians, to hear them telling in our own language the mighty works of God. And all were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, What does this mean? But others, mocking, said, Well, they're filled with new wine. But Peter, standing with the eleven, lifted up his voice and addressed them, Men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and give ear to my words, for these people are not drunk as you suppose, since it is only the third hour of the day. But this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. And in the last days it shall be... It shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh, and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams. Even on my male servants and female servants, in those days I will pour out my spirit, and they shall prophesy. And I will show wonders in the heavens above and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and vapor of smoke. And the sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the day of the Lord comes, the great and magnificent day. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know. This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death, because it was not possible for him to be held by it. For David was cons uh, says concerning him, I saw the Lord always before me, for he is at my right hand, that I may not be shaken. Therefore my heart was glad and my tongue rejoiced. My flesh also will dwell in hope, for you will not abandon my soul to Hades, nor let your Holy One see corruption. For you had made known to me the paths of life, and you will make me full of gladness with your presence. Brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that he both died and was buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. And being therefore a prophet, and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God has raised up, and of that we are all witnesses." being therefore exalted at the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he had poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself says, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you have crucified. Now I'm going to pause here for a second. Is uh, Peter taking time here to, you know, lovingly get to know them in community and, and you know, doing what Rick Warren said, you know, what we really need to do here is first love them. And what we're going to do is uh, we're going to, we're going to work with you people on an interfaith project together so that we, you, we can show you how much we love you. No, not at all. What is Peter doing then? 
He's obeying the Lord. By preaching the message of repentance and the forgiveness of sins. And at this point, um, he's pinning the crucifixion on them. Not showing a lot of love by Rick Warren's definition, but a lot of love by God and Christ's definition. We continue. So let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you have crucified. So now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart. Remember John chapter 16, Jesus says that when the Holy Spirit comes, he will convict the world of sin and unbelief. When they heard this, they were cut to the heart. We see the Holy Spirit at work here now. Not Peter's words, but the Holy Spirit at work through his words. And said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and for your children and all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. And with many other words, he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, Save yourselves from this crooked generation. Those who received his word were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. Now notice, he was bearing witness. Now the the problem with Rick Warren was not that he... uh, uh, didn't have the opportunity to bear witness to a, a group of people who didn't know the Lord. He, The problem was he didn't bear witness. We continue, And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship and to the breaking of bread and prayers, and awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common, and they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts." praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. Who did the adding? The Lord did. Acts chapter 3. We continue. Now Peter and John were going up to the temple at the hour of prayer, the ninth hour. And a man lame from birth was being carried, whom they had laid daily at the gate of the temple that is called the beautiful gate, and asked alms of those entering the temple. Seeing Peter and John about to go into the temple, he asked to receive alms, and Peter directed his gaze at him, as did John, and said, Look at us. And he fixed his attention on them, expecting to receive something from them. But Peter said, I have no silver and gold, but what I do have I give you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, Nazareth, rise and walk. And he took him by the right hand and raised him up, and immediately his feet and ankles were made strong. And leaping up, he stood and began walking and entered the temple with them, walking and leaping and praising God. And all the people saw him walking and praising God and recognized him as the one who sat at the beautiful gate of the temple asking for alms. And they were filled with wonder and amazement at what had happened to him. While he clung to Peter and John, all the people, utterly astounded, ran together to them in the portico called Solomon's. And when Peter saw it, he addressed the people, Men of Israel, why do you wonder at this? Or why do you stare at us as though by our own power or piety 
we had made him walk. The God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob, the God of our fathers glorified his servant, Jesus, whom you delivered over and denied in the presence of Pilate when he had decided to release him. But you denied the holy and the righteous one and asked for a murderer to be granted to you. And you killed the author of life whom God raised from the dead. To this, we are witnesses. And his name by faith and, and his name by faith in his name has made this man's this man strong whom you see and know and the and the faith that is through Jesus has given the man this perfect health in the presence of you all. And now, brothers, I know that you acted in ignorance as did also your rulers. But what God foretold by the mouth of all the prophets, that his Christ would suffer, he thus fulfilled. Repent, therefore, and turn again, that your sins may be blotted out. Notice again here, Peter, who is being a witness to Jesus Christ in his resurrection. And what is he saying to these people? Repent and turn that their sins might be blotted out. Watch that. Repentance and the forgiveness of sins at work in the preaching and teaching of the apostles. You want to know what a Christ, what uh, uh, what uh, the right evangelistic technique that Christ taught? Christ is the one who taught these guys to do this. This is what Christ-centered evangelism looks like. This is what Christ-honoring evangelism looks like. Witnessing to the resurrection of Jesus Christ and calling sinners to repentance that their sins might be forgiven and blotted out. Let me read that again. Repent, therefore, and turn again that your sins may be blotted out, that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord, and that he may send... The Christ appointed for you, Jesus, whom heaven must receive until the time for restoring of all things about which God spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets long ago. Moses said, The Lord God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers. You shall listen to him in whatever he tells you. And it shall be that every soul who does not listen to that prophet shall be destroyed from the people. And all the prophets who have spoken from Samuel and those who came after him also proclaim these days. And you are the sons of the prophets and of the covenant that God made with your fathers, saying to Abraham, And in your offspring shall all families of the earth be blessed. God, having raised up his servant, sent him to you first to bless you by turning every one of you from your wickedness. Peter didn't take any time to become their friend first, did he? He called them wicked and told them to repent and receive the forgiveness of sins in Jesus Christ, told them of Christ's death and resurrection for them. Hmm. Very different than what Rick Warren was proclaiming. And they were speaking, the priests, as they were speaking the, uh, to the people, the priests and the captain of the temple and the Sadducees came upon them, greatly annoyed because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead, and they arrested them and put them in custody until the next day, for it was already evening. But many of those who had heard the word believed, and the number of the men came to about 5,000. 
On the next day, their rulers and elders and scribes gathered together in Jerusalem with Annas the high priest and Caiaphas and John and Alexander and all who were of the high priestly family. And when they had set them in the midst, they inquired, By what power or by what name did you do this? Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Rulers of the people and elders, if we are being examined today concerning a good deed done to a crippled man, uh, by what means this man had been healed, let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man is standing before you well. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders which ha- the builders which has become the cornerstone, and there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given by wit- uh, given among men by which we must be saved. Now, when they saw the boldness of Peter and John, and perceived that they were uneducated common men, they were astonished. And they recognized that they had been with Jesus. But seeing the man who was healed standing beside them, they had nothing to say in opposition. But when they had commanded them to leave the council, they conferred with one another, saying, What shall we do with these men? For that is a notable sign that has been performed through them. It is evident to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and we cannot deny it. But in order that they that it may spread no further among the people, let us warn them to speak no more to anyone in this name." So they called them and charged them not to speak or to teach at all in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John answered, Whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you must judge. But For we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. And when they had further threatened them, uh, they let them go, finding no way to punish them because of the people. For all were praising God for what had happened. For the man on whom this sign of healing was performed was more than 40 years old. When they were released, they went to their friends and reported what the chief priests and the elders had said to them. And when they heard it, they lifted their voices together to God and said, Sovereign Lord, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them, who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit, Why did the Gentiles rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. For truly in the city uh, there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the prophets of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. And now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness." while you stretch out your hand to heal and signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant Jesus. And when they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. Pausing here for a second. They weren't praying that they would be given an opportunity to foster a relationship where they can show the love of Jesus in the hope that those people would ask them about God and about Jesus. No, they were showing love to the world by proclaiming 
the forgiveness of sins in Jesus Christ and calling wicked men to repentance. And they prayed for the boldness to do this. I think this is normative. I think this is the way Christ intended it to be done. Now, the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul, and no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own. But they had everything in common, and with great power the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. And there was not a needy person among them, for as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold, and it was laid at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to each as any had need. Thus Joseph, who was also called the apostle Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, a Levite, a native of Cyprus, sold a field that belonged to him and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. All right, we're going to end there. We've read four chapters in the book of Acts. We'll pick up again tomorrow on this. So uh, again, looking forward to working through this. Fantastic, fantastic work, uh, the book of Acts. And it really gives us a peek into how Christ Jesus grows his church. It's through the bold proclamation of repentance and the forgiveness of sins in Jesus Christ. It's not just repentance. It's not just the forgiveness of sins. It's both. And the announcement that Christ Jesus is Lord of all because of his resurrection from the dead. Oh, it's just amazing stuff. And it just, ooh, I, I get so excited every time I read this stuff. It is so good. All right, we are going to change gears now uh, from that to uh, our sermon review that's right time for sermon review here at fighting for the faith the good the bad the ugly we review it all and it's summertime yeah that must mean that it's time for those seeker driven purpose driven churches to preach about movies Apparently, the movies haven't been that good because uh, this particular church, uh, Oakleaf, um, they're, they're resorting to a, a blockbuster from last summer. Apparently, Transformers wasn't all that good, and maybe Star Trek. Maybe they'll get to Star Trek. I don't know. We'll see. Uh, but the name of the sermon series is God at the Movies, Dark Knight, the Reluctant Leader. Compare what you are about to hear from this pastor proclaiming the reluctant leader to the boldness of the apostles in the early church to proclaim Christ and him crucified and resurrected from the dead and call wicked sinners to repentance and the forgiveness of sins in Jesus' name. Compare what you are about to hear to what you just heard in the book of Acts. Is there any comparison? Well, we're going to find out. So without any further ado... Uh, we go to our sermon today. This is from Oakleaf uh, uh, Fellowship. I'll, I'll get the uh, the information from Oakleaf um, as we uh, get farther into it. And uh, anyway, here's their sermon. How are we doing this morning, everybody? Oh, great. Doing great. And you? Oh, man. All right. Week two of God at the Movies. Let me give you a couple confessions off the, off the beginning. Uh, first of all, this sermon is going to have a very loose tie-in to, to, uh, to Dark Knight. Listen, did you hear that? He said that this sermon is going to have a loose tie-in to Dark Knight. Loose! A loose! <sighs> we just wanted to show that trailer because we got some new speakers. And the reason they wanted to show the Dark Knight trailer is because they got new speakers there for their stage. And um, So I was trying to work this sermon into it uh, a little bit. Um, only slightly kidding. 
Um, we're going to talk about uh, a topic tonight that is, or the, today, this morning, that is one of, it's so dark in here, one of my favorite things to talk about. And as I look back over the three-year history of our church, um, I've never actually preached a sermon entirely on this topic. I don't know how many of you guys saw the Dark Knight movie. How many of you saw the movie? Do you think he's going to be talking about Christ crucified, resurrected for the forgiveness of our sins, calling sinners to repentance and the reception, the blotting out of their sins? No, probably not. Raise your hand. All right, most people, yeah, it was great, great movie. I mean, I watched that trailer again. And I'm like, I want to go watch it again. Uh, great movie, one of my, one of my favorite. Great acting, great plot, everything. Lots of things blow up. That's that's my recipe for a good movie. Um, and it was fantastic. And I was I was watching that movie. I don't know if you remember the, this scene, but there's this. You saw a little clip of it in there. There's this scene where where uh, where where Bruce Wayne. He didn't really know what to do. I mean, he was thinking about going and turning himself in. Uh, he, he didn't know how to respond. The Joker was doing all his bad stuff. So he didn't know how to respond. And and Alfred's like, no, you got to hang in there. You got to you've got to do. And he says it in there. You've got to make the decision that no one else can make. You've got to do what only you can do. Like you're you're the one that's been positioned for this. And, you know, so he doesn't turn himself in and, you know, it's kind of goes on and it's, it's a great movie. And as I was thinking about that, um, that whole reluctant, listen to this, listen to this, watch the complete me centered, not biblically grounded thing here. Watch this hero kind of thing. Like he, he was a hero, but he didn't know what, if he should do it. And I began to think about our church and how many people are involved and how many people are leaders around here. And, and I think that, that many of you have been positioned in, in areas and, and, and you're the only one that can do what needs to be done in that area. Maybe it's your home. Maybe it's at work. Maybe it's here at Oakleaf Church. I mean, but you find yourself in an environment, in a situation. And, and, and I don't know if somebody's you know, speaking to you or you hear this voice inside your head. And I just believe that you don't know if someone's speaking to you or if you hear a voice inside your head. We are already off the biblical reservation. We, we're not even starting anywhere near Christianity. I wonder if we'll get back to it. That God has placed us where we are because he wants us right there. And that there's something that only we can do, that no one else can do it. Oh, man. Delusions of grandeur. But only we can do it. What I want to talk about tonight, or the, today, I don't know why I keep saying that, this morning, is, uh, is leadership. I want to talk about the subject of leadership. Yeah, because, you know, the Bible is nothing but a big bunch of stories of leadership fables. This entire series, what we're doing is we're taking these movies and we're kind of comparing them to some of our core values as a church. And every every organization has core values. So, so we say a value is, is just kind of how we operate. Last week, Susie uh, talked about our core value of, of, intentionally, of, of reaching lost people because lost people matter to God. If you missed last week, Susie just killed it and you should, you should go and watch that uh, online if you missed it. But she talked about the value of lost people matter to God. So maybe you see a little bit of why we do what we do because this church doesn't exist for the people in here. It exists for the people out there, and that's a value of ours. Another one. Okay, did you hear that? This church doesn't exist for the people in here. What a completely dumb thing to say. This justifies why they're not really spending time preaching the gospel and preaching biblically based sermons uh, because they don't exist for the people in there, because that's selfish. No, no, no. We exist for the world, we exist for uh, unbelievers. Uh, a twisted idea that sounds right, but it's still a false idea. Uh, the, when the church gathers, the church gathers to feed on God's word, to receive the sacraments, to hear about Christ and him crucified for our sins, 
uh, to receive from God the forgiveness of sins. Oh, boy. One of our values is intentionally develop leaders. So I want to talk about leadership tonight. Some of you are like, wait, I'm not like in charge of a company. And how is this going to matter? You say, I'm not a leader. Yeah, you are. You might be a bad one, <laughs> right? But we're all leaders. I mean, if you're a parent, yeah, see, this is pra- we're going to talk about leadership because, oh, man, can you uh, please show me uh, the Apostle Peter's great leadership sermons? How about the Apostle Paul? The, the great leadership sermons that he gave. Parent, you're a leader. If you have a job and have people that work with you or for you, you're a leader. I mean, if you're one of four dudes sitting in a car going, where should we go eat? You have an opportunity right there to be a a leader. We're all leaders. We all have people that look to us for decision-making help, for, hey, what should I do? And and we're all really leaders. In fact, one of the reasons I want to talk about this is because our world and our culture crave leaders. We crave leadership. Companies and, and, and you know big companies will spend millions and millions. Who cares if the world craves leaders? We are called to go into all nations to proclaim repentance and the forgiveness of sins in Jesus' name. Not meet the big leadership problem. Oh, man. Millions and millions of dollars to steal a CEO away from another company. Why? Because they want to be led well, they need somebody to come in and show us what to do. Show us how to make more money, right? Can I, can I just ask the obvious question? What are the chances that this sermon is going to cause somebody to be, become the next CEO of a Fortune 500 company from, from listening to this sermon? Chances are greater than zero, you know, basically zero. Right. They, they'll, they'll spend millions and millions of dollars to get a good leader, to hire a good leader. Churches will rise and will fall because of leaders, good leaders and bad leaders. Companies and churches and families and, and just all, all, so many areas of our society fall, rise and fall with great leaders. In fact, I don't, you may not realize this. You may have, have never read the Bible with kind of this filter or this lens. But the Bible is full of stories of leadership. I mean, I could walk... Oh, man. you, you got to be kidding me. Just... Talk about missing the point. The Bible's about Christ. Jesus himself said it in Luke 24. It's about him. You're missing the whole point. Walking through the Old Testament where you can see prophets who would stand up before the people and say, this is what God says. This is what we should do. Yeah, because God called them and told them to do it. And he told them to do some outrageous things. You hear about Isaiah? What a great leader he was. He prophesied for a few years in the nude. And then there was, oh, I forget the prophet's name. There was one prophet whom God told that he, what he wanted him to do was bake, you know, basically cook bread, you know, bake little cakes of bread over human dung, you know, you know, burn the dung. He wouldn't do it. And so he said, no, please, God, don't make me do that. So God, God said, I'll let you do it over horse manure instead. Like, that's any better. Yeah, these are not stories of leadership. These are stories of God calling men to proclaim the true God. You can call it leadership if you like, but the leadership is a pass-through because it goes all the way back to God and to his throne and his sovereign choosing of who he's picking to, to speak and proclaim repentance and his mercy. Ay. What is that? That's leadership. 
You'll see priests and kings in the Bible that will stand up before the people and they're like, this is what we're going to do. This is what God wants us to do. And they'll lead. You can cross over into the New Testament. Oh, man. Where there are apostles and disciples and, and church planners who would go around and just start churches and gather people together and say, guys, this is what we're going to do. First Corinthians chapter 11, verse 1, if you want to jot this reference down, just a Real short verse, Paul wrote this down. Here's what he told the people that lived in this city. He said, be imitators of me as I am of Christ. You see what he's saying right there? Guys, guys, just do what I'm doing. Just, just do what I'm, you, you copy me because I'm, I'm following Jesus. So if you guys follow me, you'll really be following Jesus. And what Paul's saying, he, he's talking about leadership. He's saying, you guys just, you guys just follow me. I know where we're going. We're going to become more like Christ. Let's. Oh, man. Allah here. No gospel. We continue. Let's go. He writes it in a different place. Romans 12, 8. He just says this one. I mean, this is just for all of us. He just says, lead diligently. <laughs> right? Like, do a good job. Be a good... Okay, by the way, this is... Uh, the name of the church is Oakleaf Church, and they are in Cartersville, Georgia. Sorry, I didn't have that at the beginning of the sermon. Yeah, but they are definitely a seeker-driven, purpose-driven church. Leader, and it doesn't matter whether you're talking about a family or a business or a church or just any area of your life. Be a good leader. How can we go to the Bible? How can we become better leaders? And why is this so important? Oh, man. You know, it's funny. Um, the emphasis – I have a master's degree in business administration from Pepperdine University – and the emphasis of my master's degree is leadership and organizational change. And as somebody who has um, studied this subject, I am in complete agony because he's not telling us the beginnings of leadership at all at this point. He, I don't think he knows what he's talking about. At, um, in our church, for example. Let me give you an example. And by the way, as somebody who, who, who has an advanced degree in leadership and organizational change, um, let me say this. Um, I don't look to the Bible to help me with leadership. Just pointing it out. At our church, we don't try to do everything. Uh, I, I know you, sometimes you go to churches and you read little bulletins and stuff. I, I sometimes co I used to collect these handouts from other churches. And you open them up and you just have like Monday. Here's all the things going on. Tuesday, all the things. I mean, there's like 50 things going on. And uh, we don't have, we don't do that here. And that's on purpose. We don't do a whole lot of things because we, we would rather do some things really well than to do a whole bunch of other things, you know, average. So we say around here that there's only a few things that we want to do really well. Like, like we want to do our weekend services really well. I mean, we, we spend a lot. Well, you're not doing it because you're not preaching Christ and him crucified for our sins. So you're not doing that well. A lot of effort. And here's a little chart. We spend a lot of effort on, on, on making this hour of your life really good. Like, we don't want you to come here and go like, well, that was a complete waste of time. Right. We try to make. By the way, this is uh, their lead pastor, Michael uh, Lukaszewski. Okay. Make this really good. Our, our groups, whether they're volunteer teams or, or Oakleaf University or Journey Groups, we try to make those really good. Kids ministry, you want to do that well. Student ministry, you want to do that well. And serving our community. When we say... Uh, what is the Bible... Can you... Can, yeah, Mike, uh, can we get to the Bible anytime soon? Hey, what do we want to do? Because, I mean, maybe... I noticed that you, you, know, you, you said you weren't going to really do a lot of Dark Knight. But can you do a lot of Bible instead then? As Oakleaf Church, that's it. Those are the things right there.
You notice there's a lot of stuff missing off that list. And you know why? Because we don't think we could do it really well. But we want to do this. Maybe you should focus on, you know, let's see, focus on really doing really Christ-centered, good, in-depth, focusing on repentance and the forgiveness of sins in Christ and Him crucified from every passage of Scripture. That would be a great one. The things that we can do really well. But across all those, that's why it says on the side, across all those things, what we want to do is develop leaders who can go into those five areas and lead them really well. It takes a bunch of leaders to have good services on the weekend. It takes a bunch of leaders to have groups. It takes a bunch of leaders to organize uh, kids' ministry and student ministry and to serve out in the community. So what we try to do is intentionally, on purpose, develop leaders. So here's what I want to do. I don't know if you guys are note-taking kind of people, but today's a great week to take notes. In fact, on the back of your little handout... I have my pen and paper handy. I gave you a little space. I always take notes during these sermons. ...space to take notes because I'm going to be a little different today, a little different this morning. Normally, we kind of take one little passage and we break it down and talk about it and have like a big thing. Here's a big thing. But you're going to get a 10-point sermon today. Some of you are like, oh my. You are kidding me. 10-point sermon? <sighs> I feel writer's cramp coming on. My, But each point's only going to be a couple minutes long, so relax. 10 things about good leaders, 10 things about how we intentionally want to develop leaders and how 10 qualities of great leaders. And I really want to challenge you to write these down because this is going to be like one of those, like, you know, we're just going to shoot a bolt here, 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 just like 10 and and maybe a couple of these will, will hit home for you. All right. So here we go. We're just going to dive in. You guys ready? Good. Two people are ready. Fantastic. The rest of you just take a nap. All right. Number one, great leaders are led by God. Great leaders are led by God. Because some of you, I know right now, you're like, I came to this church and he didn't even talk about a Bible story. He just talked about leadership. Hey, leadership is incredible. Yeah, that would be my critique. Because <laughs> your job as a pastor, in case you're not familiar with your job description there, Mike. Second uh, Timothy chapter 4, preach the word in season, out of season. You know, reprove, repro- rebuke, exhort. For the time is coming when people not endure sound doctrine. Your job is to actually do that anyway spiritual our entire mission statement has lead in it to lead people from where they are to where god wants them to be but you need to understand something that this is not just leadership because we want to get more money or have a bigger company that's nothing to do with that this is a spiritual kind of leadership leadership is incredibly spiritual because great leaders are led by god you go in the bible and you look at moses and you look at uh, the disciples peter or you look at paul and you look at these people and and they're 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 led they're directed by god See, great leaders, whether it's in our church or just out in the world, in the, in the, in the community, great leaders are led by God. I, I've, I am just now beginning to understand that there's a huge difference between pleasing people and pleasing God. See, you can live your life to please people. Or- Which is exactly what the seeker-driven, uh, purpose-driven model does. Uh, please people. Uh, tell them what they want to hear rather than boldly proclaim uh, what the gospel and what Christ has told us to proclaim. Just an observation on my part. Just saying, you know. Or you can live your life to please God. And great leaders, they, they have this vision and this mission from God. And they're led by God. And they're trying to please God. Let me tell you, as a lead pastor of this church, what my most important job like duty is like i have a job description i mean just like everybody else if you work for us you have a job description the things that you're supposed to do and mine has a bunch of stuff on it but but the most important thing i do okay please please give me second timothy four 
that I need to do every day, that I need to do every week, every month, the most important thing that I can do as a leader of this church is very simple. It is to hear from God. And how does that happen? Please tell me it comes through you carefully reading God's word rather than experiencing some liver shiver or what you think is the still small voice, which is a complete torture uh, uh, misinterpretation of that passage. But listen, let's, let's, oh, please. It's to hear from God. If I'm just standing up here every weekend and just saying, here's some, here's some junk I think, right? That's not going to help any of us. Which is exactly what you're doing right now. Here's some junk I think. We're going to talk about leadership. What I have to do is I have to hear from God. And where do you hear from God? So one of the most important things I do is when I get to the office first thing in the morning is I close the door and I just, I just read the Bible. Oh, good. I'm glad you hear from God through the Bible. Whew. Okay, why aren't you preaching that again today? And I pray. And you're like, well, that, that, that's not like very creative and that's not writing a sermon or that's not making a cool something another. And just, No, no, no. But that's the most important thing I do is just to hear from God. How can I tell you anything what God wants if I'm not hearing from God myself? Great, Great point. Uh, why don't you share with us some of the things that you learned in reading God's word this week? Just a thought. Leaders are led by God, not by some book, not by some principle, not by some website, not some kind of business strategy. Great leaders are led by God. So here's a question. If you want to be a great leader, what does God want you to do? You, you, you respond to what God wants you to do. All right. Number two, write this one down. Leaders have, this is a no deer in here. <sighs> that was, you missed the part in your job description where your job is to preach the word in season and out of season. Hang on a second here. So great leaders hear from God. Okay, our leaders, for, you know, okay, go on. No, duh. Leaders have followers. No. <laughs> really? Leaders have followers? I would have never guessed. Whew, I'm so glad you showed that from, to me from the Bible because I had no idea that leaders have followers. Oh, duh. Leaders have followers. Like, really? Seriously? Yeah, that's the whole point. Like, I went to this church one time, and he just said, leaders have followers. Yeah, yeah. Some some people are like, well, I'm... You know, I feel like you're hearing me, and why? Because you already know how stupid this is. I'm a leader. Well, no one's following you. <laughs> you're not a leader. <laughs> if you don't have people following you, you're not really a leader. See, leaders... Do I need a crucified and risen Savior to deal with this leadership problem? Just, you know, just saying, just wondering, you know develop people if you don't have any followers then you're not really leading like well I'm, I'm leading this great ministry well there's no one involved other than you and like your kids and you make them come right <laughs> leaders have followers leaders have followers I, I love this story one of my favorite sermons that i listen to in fact our whole staff is listening to it this month um, as part of our kind of leadership development plan is a sermon by td jakes i don't know if you know who td jakes is but you've got to be kidding me you're listening to t you know he's a heretic right he denies the doctrine of the Trinity. We've reviewed his sermon, uh, one of his sermons here, completely off the reservation biblically. But he's he is a you sir are not a good leader because you're not screening out uh, false doctrine and you're prom you're telling your people in your congregation that you listen to TD Jakes. What, what happens if they go wandering off and listening to one of his sermons? Do you not know the man's a heretic? Awesome uh, preacher, black preacher, wears purple suits. I want to be T.D. Jakes one day when I grow up, except I don't have a purple suit. And you don't even have 
the thimble's worth of the charisma he has too, but he uses his charisma for evil. And I'm not black, but I'm working on it. I'm working on at least one of those two things. Um, yeah, you sound so much like him. I, I mean, I, I almost mistook you for uh, T.D. Jakes. He, he's preaching this sermon. It's like two hours long. It's not really two hours long. It seems, it's long. And it's, it's on the Ten Commandments of Leadership. And he's talking about Moses. And, he's, and, and, he's, and there's a story in the Exodus where Moses, when he lifts his hands up, the, the army is winning. But his, when his hands get tired and they start to yeah, fall. Yeah, the, the sun stands still prayers that uh, Furtick talked about. Yeah. Fall. Wait, that wasn't. No, that was a different story. Fall down, the army starts losing. And, and he's talking about how Moses, he just couldn't keep his hands up for a really long time all by himself. So there were these two guys, these two people come along. One, one was named Aaron and another was named Hur. And they would come along and they would, they would lift his hands up. Because Moses' hands would get tired. As a leader, he had to just keep them up and they were winning. And they would get tired. So Aaron and Hur, would, and they'd come and they'd just prop his hands up and they'd hold his hands up. And he's saying that every leader, right, every Moses has to have an Aaron and a Hur in their life. Every leader has to have a team of people. Really, it doesn't say that in the passage, by the way. That's a completely allegorical interpretation of that passage. And you know who's missing from that interpretation? Oh, I know. The God who brought the victory. Mm-hmm. Around him or around her to help accomplish the mission. Every leader has to have followers. See, no leader has accomplished anything without a great team of people around them. A lot of times people will come to a church, this church or any other church, and, and, it, and it, it's like... All, like the pastor, all of it. It's all about the pastor. I'm going to tell you right now, I could do the most amazing job in the universe, but if there's not a team of people around, you know, lifting up my hands and doing the things that need to be done, this church doesn't exist. This church doesn't exist because of me. It exists because there are hundreds, hundreds of people lifting up my hands and lifting up other people's hands and, and leading. And, and there are followers and there are leaders. And there's teams of people that are just... That are just throughout this. So you want to be a great leader? Develop some people around you. You're like, well, I want to start this great ministry and I want to get hundreds of people. Yeah, well, just get two people. Can you get two people? Because if you can't get two people, you can't get 200 people. I mean, if you can't sell this. Oh, boy. I'm in pain. I am in. My ears are hurting. To like four or five people, then you're not going to sell it to four or five hundred people. I mean, if you can't lead one other. Again, could you show me the great leadership sermons of Jesus, please? How about the great leadership sermons of the Apostle Paul? You know, if I were to put together a book, how many pages would it be if it was entitled The Great Leadership Sermons of the Apostle Peter? There would be no pages. Other person, you can't get one other person to follow you. You can't get many people to follow you. All right, number three. Great leaders lead themselves. Lead themselves. Uh, really great leaders lead themselves. Uh, are you getting any of this from the Bible there, Mike? Themselves. What am I talking about? I'm talking about personal leadership. See, because there's a lot of people that they want to lead others, but their own life is just messed up. I mean, just messed up. But great leaders learn how to lead themselves. See, if you can't lead yourself, I don't think you can lead other people. Where is this in the Bible? Great leaders lead themselves. If great leaders have to have followers, I'm not a follower of myself. That's just stupid. Lead yourself. Are there any passages in the Bible that talk about leading yourself? 
uh, isn't Christ my Lord, my leader? Hmm. I think if you can't lead yourself, then you're probably not worth following. Uh, the important sentence there, I, if, I believe if you can't lead yours, I believe if you can't lead, I believe if you can't. Did you notice the I believe part? He's just giving us his opinions. Really? Mike, when did your opinion become even remotely grounds uh, for an appropriate sermon topic? Your job, sir, is to preach God's word, not your opinions. We continue. Listen to this quote. This is a, uh, a guy by the name of Thomas Watson. He was the president of IBM in 1874. Great. Thomas Watson, was he one of the apostles? Was he a witness to the uh, resurrection of Jesus Christ? Was he one of the prophets of the Old Testament? Hmm. He lived from 1874 to 1956. And uh, here's what he said. By the way, keep in mind, this is the funny part about this. Remember that the name of this sermon is God at the Movies. And this is supposed... <laughs> this is supposedly a sermon about Dark Knight. <laughs> This is the worst, this is the most poorly done Seekers, oh man, topic I've seen. <sighs> said, nothing so conclusively proves a man's ability to lead others as what he does from day to day to lead himself. You know what he's saying? He's saying, hey, you've got to lead yourself well. Yeah, because we all know that he wrote that under the inspiration of God the Holy Spirit, third person of the Holy Trinity. Yeah. See, sometimes I think as as leaders, we try to take care of everybody else's stuff. Sometimes I think. Sometimes I think. Shut up and stop telling us what you think. Tell us what God's word says and what God thinks. Before we take care of our own stuff. Well, let me be real practical. Let me give you a couple examples of what. What about, what about habits? Talk about habits. Do you have any bad habits you need to break? They're called sins. Did Christ do anything about sins? Uh, just, you know, just a question, just wondering. You know, you're supposed to be a Christian pastor. Did Christ do anything about sins? They're not habits, they're sins. And we are enslaved to sin by nature. Did Jesus do anything whatsoever? I, can, I, I, can I think of anything that Jesus did to defeat sin, death of the devil? Hmm, anything come to mind. Oh, I know. He died on the cross for our sins. Hmm. That's leading yourself. I mean, some of you have a bad habit. And you know it's a bad habit. You're like, I've been trying to break this. And you know what? That's leading yourself. That's self-leadership. Oh, okay. So apparently you are the example of somebody who leads themselves without any sins. I don't think so, Mike. If we can't break our own bad habits. We can't break our own? If we could break our own bad habits, then what was Jesus doing on the cross there, Mike? I mean, if I can break my own bad habits and stop sinning, uh, then I don't need Jesus. I don't need a savior. I just need a good kick in the butt and somebody to coach me into, you know, doing enough push-ups necessary to break the bonds of those the, 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 of the of that slavery that's enslaving me. And what kind of authority do we have to lead other people? How, how about your schedule? Apparently, then, you don't have any authority there, Michael, because I hate to say it. It's really clear from Scripture, and you won't be able to deny it. 
at least not credibly, you are a sinner. A big one. So therefore, you have no credibility in the leadership because you're basing it upon somehow being victorious yourself and leading yourself. You don't even do it. You know, what's funny is when you read Romans 7, the Apostle Paul never claimed even that kind of leadership for himself. He said, the things I want to do, I don't do. And the things I don't want to do, I do. Paul, the Apostle Paul, was a terrible leader of himself. Hmm... How about your schedule? You ever have these days? I have these. I had one of these days last week where you just do all kinds of junk all day long, and then you get to the end of the day and you don't feel like you did anything. You're like, ah, I got nothing, nothing accomplished. And those, those happen all the time. But if those happen all the time, what about your schedule? Do you lead your own personal schedule, or you just go from emergency to emergency to emergency to emergency? Yeah, thank you. Uh, these are principles I learned from Franklin Covey and his uh, timekeeping or you know time management seminar. Uh, didn't learn when did Jesus teach these principles? Any of them? Any of them? M- Moses, the prophets? Any of them? Come on! I- I've learned that if I don't lead my schedule, then then it, it'll just go crazy. It'll just go crazy, and I won't get the important things done. So that, that's learning how to lead ourselves. All right, let me give you another one. Number four, man, this is a big one. This is important. I can hardly wait. Great leaders don't convert people to their agenda, but to God's agenda. Great leaders don't convert people to their agenda, but to God's agenda. Let me tell you some ways that I see. Okay, where do we find God's agenda there, Mike? Maybe you should talk about what God's agenda is. What is God's agenda anyway? How about the agenda of Jesus Christ for the church? Are you familiar with uh, Luke chapter 24 at all? I mean, just, I mean, Jesus has an agenda, right, you know, for the church. And so if you're going to convert people to his agenda, maybe you should know what it is. Uh, <clears throat> Luke 24, verse 46, he said to them, Thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead, and that repentance and the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations, beginning from Jerusalem. That's the Jesus agenda, that we proclaim repentance and the forgiveness of sins in his name. Are you doing that? See this, this, this kind of working in the church. Sometimes people will come to a church because of, of a particular ministry or a program. And they'll come in there like, I, I really love kids. I love kids, so I want to I serve with kids. Or, 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 or I really like to play in the band, and I want to play guitar, and I'm going to be a guitar player, and I'm going to get in the band, I'm going to play guitar. And people become very committed to those places, to those specific things. I mean, they may even be sold out to the people that are leading those things. But then something happens, right? Something happens to disrupt that, and all of a sudden, it's, they, just, they just blow up. They just blow up. And, and you know why? I, I think a lot of times it's because they were committed to their particular piece of the puzzle. By the way, we are 16 minutes, 15 seconds into this sermon. And uh, so far, the only mention of Scripture was kind of uh, uh, in passing in basically discussing T.D. Jakes's handling of a particular passage. Um, so that doesn't count because T.D. Jakes is a heretic. <laughs> but not to the puzzle itself. That they're commit, uh, committed to an act of service, to a task, but not to the entire mission of the organization. See, great leaders, that we don't set out to convert people to our agenda. We try to convert people to God's agenda. I'll tell you what, it doesn't really matter what I want around here. Apparently it does because you're in rebellion to Christ's agenda because you're not even remotely on the same page as our leader and Lord Jesus. You know? It doesn't really matter what you want around here because we have a mission and a vision and a purpose that's bigger than any of us. 
What matters most around here is what... Uh, by the way, your mission, your personal mission, vision, and whatever for your particular congregation uh, has no authority whatsoever to trump the mission and vision statement given by Christ for the church at large. Uh, can you get back to Christ's mission statement, please? You know, go and make disciples of all nations, teaching them everything I've commanded you, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and proclaiming repentance and the forgiveness of sins in Jesus' name to all nations. You know, that... God wants. So, I, I mean, real, real practical. Like, you get a guy's like on the parking team, and they're like, we park cars, we park cars. You know, but, but, but if they're just committed to parking cars and not to leading people from where they are to where God wants them to be, parking cars will become an idol. Some people are committed to kids. I just love kids. I'm not doing... Uh, any of you out there suffering from uh, the car parking idol, uh, please email me. I will find a 12-step group for you immediately. Maybe we can help you celebrate recovery. I mean, oh, could you imagine? I mean, being in a group of fellow people. Hi, my name is Chris, and I, I, I suffer from the idolatry of car parking. Doing anything else in the church but kids? Are, well, are you serving kids? Or are you serving Jesus? There's, there's a big difference. See, we don't serve kids. We don't park cars. We don't play guitars. We serve Jesus by parking cars. We serve Jesus by playing the guitar. See, there's a big difference. So we don't want to be committed to our own agenda. How many, we we all know people that kind of get into a church and they get their little mission and they got their little agenda and we're trying to do something. Hey, down with all those, even if it's mine. Because our mission is God's mission. So we're not trying to convert people to our agenda, but to God's agenda. All right, number five. This should probably be number one because it's the most important in my opinion. Ooh, number okay. five, great leaders are great servants. Great leaders are great servants. I'll just be real honest. Can you give us an example from Scripture? I'm thinking of one off the top of my head. Um, you know, Jesus washing the feet of the disciples. Maybe you can go there. What do you think? What do you think? Bring a little Bible in, you know, to kind of, you know... Make this at least have some kind of an appearance of a Christian sermon. Honest with you, I'm not real good at this one. I'm not real good at this one. Some people in our church are just phenomenal servants, man. If you need something, they they are there. They will get it done. Yeah, I agree. You're not a good servant because you're not serving us God's word, which is your job in the role of the servant of pastor. But great leaders are great servants. There's a story in the Bible. Um, I don't have time to read it all. We'll maybe study this later. But there's a story in the Bible where, where the disciples and Jesus, they're all walking on a road. And, and two of the disciples are kind of hanging back. And they're arguing about who's going to sit at God's right hand. And they're like, well, I'm going to sit it. And the right hand was a place of importance. It was like a seat of honor. If you were having a – think of like a wedding reception, you know, the head table, like the bride and the groom. And the few people that would be very important would sit there. And the Okay, he's doing a little something Bible-ish here. But notice he says we don't have any time to really get into this, which makes me want to ask the question, why would you not have time in the sermon to preach God's word? What could possibly be more important during sermon time to than preaching God's word? So he's quickly giving us a synopsis of this Bible story, but apparently preaching God's word is really not his agenda right now. Do any of you notice a problem with that? I mean, is it just me? 
to the right is the most important seat of honor in this culture. So they're like, hey, God, when, and I'm gonna sit, when we get to heaven, I'm going to sit next to Jesus. I'm going to sit at his right hand. And the other one's like, no, I'm going to sit there. And they're arguing. And Jesus is up ahead of them. And, if, and you know, he's like, what are you guys talking about? <laughs> you can't lie to Jesus because he knows the answer anyway. And they're like, well, Jesus, hey, here, here we want to ask you a question. When we get to heaven, when we get to the kingdom, who's going to sit at your right hand? Actually, if you would read the passage, they're not thinking about getting to heaven in the kingdom. They think Jesus is going to inaugurate his kingdom on earth. He's going to set up a political regime with the headquarters in Jerusalem, and they they want some, you know, they would like some really high political offices. Oh boy! And what they're really asking is, who's going to be the most important? I mean, who do you love the most? Who's going to be honored the most? Who's going to be the greatest? They say, who's going to be the greatest in your kingdom? Now, you would expect Jesus to say, that is the wrong question. Jesus didn't yell at them for the question. In fact, he, he very plainly answered the question. He didn't answer it with a story or a parable or something like random. He, he answered the question. He said, if you want to be great, he didn't yell at them for wanting to be great. He said, if you want to be great, here's how. He said, whoever wants to be first needs to be last. Whoever wants to, to, to get ahead needs to be at the end of the line. He said the secret to greatness is in serving other people. And Jesus didn't just say this. He lived this. He modeled this for him. Several days later, they're in the upper room and Jesus is about to be crucified. And Oh, good. He's going to get to the washing of the feet. Thank God. Huh? They're there and Jesus actually washed the feet of the disciples. And every time I hear a sermon on the washing of the feet, they always talk about, you know, people wore sandals and they walked on dirty roads, so their feet were nasty back then. And I'm thinking, yeah, that's nasty now. I mean, that's, that's, I don't care what sin, it's gross. I'm not, you know, washing feet? Yeah. Right? I don't even like feet. I don't even like, like to wash my own feet. Jesus picked up a towel, and a basin of water, and he washed all the disciples' feet. That was a job for servants. And Jesus said, hey, I'm not just telling you this whole serve, 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 serve. Let me show you. And he washed his feet. What kills me about that story is the Bible says that he washed all the disciples' feet and Judas was there. And he washed the feet of the very one who would betray him in Judas. Did you-, you know, this little sec- section right in here is actually good. Why? Because it's pointing me back to Christ. Okay. But the thing is, is that... He's trying to get through this quickly because he has another agenda. <laughs> Man. By the way, what's the... I mean, yeah, it it's great that Jesus modeled this. this servant leadership, so to speak. Okay, it's critical. But where does Christ ultimately become the servant of all? It's by his death on the cross. So there is Jesus... On the cross, bleeding, suffering, and dying. You've ever heard the, the biblical term, the suffering servant? That's what we see in the cross. So even greater than the feet washing is Jesus' death on the cross for you. He was being your servant, dying in your place, taking the punishment you deserved propitiating God's wrath and serving you on the cross. Jesus said the secret to greatness, the key... Yeah, here, here's the problem with this, the way he's bending this. The secret to greatness... No, Jesus is not really talking about greatness. 
not greatness according to the way we think of it. Again, when we think about greatness, we think of somebody who gets international uh, fame and, and adulation as well, you know, is a superstar, is great, has the praise of all. God has, God doesn't want us to seek the praise of other people. You know, greatness, the way the world understands greatness. But instead, it's, it's really greatness before God. And when Jesus Christ, here's another twist to all of this, you know, the, the sons of thunders, they, they, when Jesus comes in his glory, he, he says it's not for them, you know, for him to decide who sits on his right or his left when he comes into his glory. Where is Jesus in his glory? On the cross. That's Christ's greatest glory is the cross. It's his coronation. And who's on his right and his left? Two thieves. Two thieves. Positions of honor at Jesus' greatest moment of glory, the cross. And it's two thieves. Jesus turns everything on its head. Everything. The key to being great, the key to being a leader is to be a servant. Let me just give you a confession. All churches have insiders, right? The important people in the church. All churches. And I'm not going to lie to you and stand up here and say, there's not this. All churches have, have a core of people. I want to tell you how to get on the core of the people, you know, how to get on the core of Oakleaf Church. Apparently we're off uh, the Bible now. You be a servant. That's how. You know the most important people in our church? They're servants. We don't have these boards and committees with people with fancy titles. We have people that actually do ministry and that's how you become important around here. You, you serve other people. D.L. Moody said this. There are many of us. We have this quote on the wall of our office. There are many of us that are willing to do great things for the Lord. But few of us are willing to do little things. I, I want to I preach to hundreds. Why don't you just go talk to your neighbor? I, I want to sing in a band for thousands of people. Just get your guitar and just lead 10. See, many of us, we want, to, we want to do these great things for God. But sometimes God puts things right in front of us. And we think, ah, God, that's not big enough. Hey, be faithful with the little. Be faithful with the little. See, leaders, great leaders around. Whoa, 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 whoa. That was an interesting little law slip there. I got to comment on it. Uh, the uh, the rest of the quote is be faithful with a little and I'll you know put you over a lot. That's kind of the that's the Roseboro paraphrase there. But listen to what he just said: be faithful with a little, then God will give you much. It's this idea: if you're faithful with these things, then God's going to give you more. Got to be careful here because uh, that's like saying our good works somehow put God in our debt. Oh man. Around here are great servants. There are people serving around here. It's not a title. It's a, it's a mission. And they serve because of the mission and because they love Jesus. Numbers, all right, let me give you number six. Number six, leaders think of tomorrow, not just today. Leaders think of tomorrow, not just today. Again, could you uh, substantiate that with a Bible passage, please? I mean, you did so well on the servant leadership thing. Because, I mean, it just the, the, that particular point... In your sermon, just lended itself so well to talking about Jesus. 
think you could do it with the sixth point, seventh point, eighth point, ninth, tenth? So most of us are very today oriented. Like we may have today planned and that's it. Like what are you doing next week? I don't know. Got today to figure it out though. Going to church, taking a nap. I'll watch NASCAR, which will help me take a nap. <laughs> Actually, it was on last night. So you missed it. See, I knew that. I knew that. Y'all are impressed by that right there. I also got a cat this last week. No, I'm just kidding. Don't get crazy. It's crazy talk. See, leaders think of tomorrow, not just today. You say, where are we going? Where are we going tomorrow? Will this thing help us get there? If we do this, will it help us get to where we're going? See, a lot of times we just do kind of whatever. We just, we go this way for a couple days and this way for a couple days and this way for a couple days. But leaders are always thinking about where they're going. They're always thinking about the end. Is this going to help me get to where I'm going? Is this going to help me get to where I'm going? What's the vision? What are we trying to accomplish? Will this help us accomplish that? See, the reason I think that most people screw up their families is because they don't have a picture of what it's going to look like in the end. What do you want your kids to look like? I'm not talking about physically look like and be a good baseball player. I'm saying what kind of character do you want your kids to have? Picture that and then raise your kids. See, you have a picture of the end in mind. Don't just think of today. Think of where you're going. You know, I, I, as I sit around, I sit at my desk and, you know, uh, <clears throat> okay, let's uh, let's uh, spend a little time here in the Bible for a second here. Mentioned it in passing. I'm going to come back to it now proper. Matthew 28. All right. Jesus thinking about the end there. The, so Jesus would be the example of the good leader, I guess. Um, let's see. Matthew 28, uh, verse 18. Then Jesus came and said to the disciples, all authority in heaven on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations. Go and make disciples of all nations. Go and make disciples of all nations. Baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. Not some of it, all of it. Okay, um, just pointing that out. So Jesus, you know, thinking about the end from the beginning, you know, he knew that he wanted those people who... Um, who trusted in him and had faith in him to be disciples, lifelong learners uh, about him. And they, he wanted them to know everything about him. You know, funny enough, you know, that's exactly why second Timothy exists. Chapter four, uh, Paul writing a, a letter to a young pastor. I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ, who is the judge, the living and the dead. And by his appearing, preach the word. You see, Jesus, you know, being that, leader who saw down the line what it is that he wanted those who trusted him to you know be like it describes them as disciples as lifelong learners and that's why the apostle paul says to young pastor timothy who is in the ministry uh the the word and sacrament ministry in the christian church uh, that he is to preach the word uh, be ready in season and out of season, reprove, rebuke, exhort with complete patience and teaching. For the time is coming when people will not endure sound doctrine, but having itching ears will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. As for you, always be sober-minded, endure the suffering, uh, suffering, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry. So here, Jesus Christ, uh, you know, God, God um, causes you know Paul to write. Actually, it's the Holy Spirit causes Paul to write uh, these words, which really fit well with Jesus's command to the disciples, to the apostles, to go and make disciples of all nations. 
so basically whether it's in vogue or not you preach the word uh, can you really say that this sermon uh, the this, <laughs> the so-called dark night sermon if you could even you can't even call it a dark night it's not even faithful to god's word and it's not even faithful to the movie dark night <laughs> oh this is an epic fail in uh, seeker sensitivism but here's the thing is this sound biblical doctrine that he's teaching no, the be- the closest he came was point five regarding great leaders are great servants. There we got to hear just a little bit about Jesus being a servant. But the problem was, is it was twisted because that's how you quote achieve greatness with no distinction between what the world considers great and what God considers great. This does not qualify as sound doctrine, nor does it qualify as preaching the word. This guy's not doing his job. Oh, man. In fact, you know, leadership, yeah, it's a quite a relevant uh, topic there, dude. But it's not what Christ would have you preach. You know, talk to people at Oakleaf Church and our staff. I'm trying to think of, hey, what, what's five years from now? What's 10 years from now? What's going to happen 20 years from now? And, and those are the things that we... Have. Yeah, you're not following the leadership of Jesus who wants his believers to be disciples, learners. How are we supposed to learn about Christ and everything that he's commanded and taught if you're not teaching everything that he's commanded and taught from the pulpit? We have to start picturing and visualizing in our head right now. Leaders think of tomorrow, not just today. All right, number seven, great leaders communicate clearly. Great leaders communicate clearly. Now, some of you, you're not... You're not um, not like public speakers. In fact, I, yeah, is, is it a sin if I'm not? I read somewhere that the two greatest fears, you know, the phobias that people have, like all these crazy phobias, the two greatest fears were fears of death and the fear of public speaking. And public speaking was actually number one. So if you have to give a eulogy, you are in big trouble. Um, <laughs> right? Um, <laughs> The fear of public speaking, standing up in front of a bunch of people, and the fear of death. And public speaking is number one. Because for, for most of us, it, 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 it's hard to communicate to a large audience. I'm the opposite of this. I don't like to communicate to a small audience. Again, do I need a crucified and risen Savior to solve this problem? Is this the problem that Christianity, that Jesus Christ came to solve? The fear of public speaking? Add into the mix that that recurring dream that some people have, uh, the ultimate nightmare, uh, public speaking in front of your friends in the nude. That's that's not a fun dream. That's a nightmare. I've had that one. Not good. No bueno. Especially for the people who had to see it, but it was only a dream. I'm much more comfortable in front of a thousand than in front of five. But I'm just weird like that because I don't like people. Um, Again, uh, Mike, this sermon shouldn't be about you. It's like I went to this church one time and the pastor said he didn't like people. Yeah, I don't like people. All right, anyway. Um, but we're talking about communicating clearly. And, and I heard a pastor who I greatly respect say this one time. He said, leaders, you can afford to be wrong. You just can't afford to be unclear. And I grabbed onto that because I'm wrong a lot. <laughs> But if I'm wrong... Yeah, like you were wrong in picking this as a sermon topic. I'm with you there, dude. I want us to all be on the same page and be wrong. <laughs> you know? I remember we were meeting at the movie theater not too long ago. We, I think this is our 10th 
weekend here at the House of Rock. We were meeting at the movie theater, and we were at three services, and all three the three services were full except for eight forty five because we could never get anyone to come to church at eight forty five. And uh, the services were full, and people were leaving. Like people would come, they couldn't find a seat, they would just leave and go away. And we're like, we got to do something. So everybody on staff had like an idea. I had like four of all the things that we should do. We're like, we should rent another church on a on a Sunday night and have another service, and we should do that. And we should, you know, we could move here. And we had all these different plans, and we talked about it and debate and our staff would get together and we're like, well, we could do this and we could do this. Well, what if we did this? We could get a video. We could have overflow. We got all these different plans. And, and, and we were just talking about anything in there about your, about, you know, actually doing what you're supposed to do, preaching the word, you know, Christ and crucified repentance, forgiveness of sins. Any plans for that anywhere in your church there, dude, or is that not in your vision and mission statement? About them and talking about them and talking about them. And finally, I just like, we gotta, we just gotta pull the trigger on one of them. None of them are good. They're all like mediocre plans at best. Let, let's just do one. So I remember getting all our guys together. I'm like, all right, here's what we're gonna do. We talked about video and overflow and Saturday, moving here and doing. Here's what we're gonna do. We're gonna have four services and they're all gonna overlap and the bands are gonna move back and forth and I'm gonna move back and forth. All right, ready, set, go. And everybody likes, looks at me and they're like, that's the dumbest plan ever. I said, I know it is, but that's the one we're doing, right? And, and, and it was dumb and it was ridiculous. And it didn't make any sense. So I would preach a sermon over here that was 30 minutes long. And that little clock would count down from 30 minutes to zero. And I felt like it would explode when it got to zero. And when it got to zero, I was literally, I had to walk across to another theater and start over again. And I would walk in like right as Matt was playing the last thing. And I'd walk out and do it again. And I'd go back and forth and do that four times. And this was my plan. This was my idea to do this, right? And so, so we're like, this is what we're going to do. And, and it was... Probably not a good idea, but it was clear. So here's what happened next. Who cares? Can you open up the Bible and start talking about Jesus again? I, I like that part. All of our all of our people rallied around it. Some of you rallied around it. And like the greeters were like, we can do this. And they'd go over to this theater and they'd be like, welcome to Oak Leaf, welcome to Oak Leaf, welcome to Oak Leaf. And they'd run over here. They're like, have a great day, have a great day. And they'd run back over here and, and they would do it. And our kids, people are like going back and forth doing crazy things. And our band is like playing a song and unplugging a guitar and running. I mean, it was crazy. But, our, but people did it. And I, I think, you know what? Sometimes the crazier I sound, the more you guys respond and step up. So we're doing some crazy junk next year, right? I mean, be, because the cra- and, 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 uh, what, what we were saying. Yeah, you know, like the crazy thing of actually saying that you're going to be preaching a sermon called God at the Movies, The Dark Knight, The Reluctant Leader. <laughs> and, and not talk about that at all. And not even really uh, bringing the Bible. Oh boy, this is the worst of all worlds. Saying it was just tell me the plan, tell me what we're going to do, and we'll make it work. And see, leaders are clear. I'll be wrong again, but I just uh, like you are now. Just, I just hope we can be clear. We can be clear about what our mission is. All right, number eight. Uh, real leaders are committed to a cause bigger than themselves. Real leaders are committed to a cause bigger than themselves. You know, we talked about the people that are real committed to parking or kids or a particular ministry in the church, but not necessarily the church. And that's a problem. That's a problem. We don't want people in this church committed to the ministries in the church more than they're committed to the church. Because then when you start tinkering with their ministries, they get, oh, you, you, they take it personally. There are uh, churches, and this is not one of them, but there, there, you know, there are churches. I talked about the ones that has this like Denny's kind of menu of all the things. Like we have all these things, and from time to time, we'll have people come up like, "We need to have a motorcycle ministry." I'm like, what is that? I don't even know what that is. We should have ladies' tea. What? Yeah, it's like ladies and tea, and we could get together. Like, 
go to Starbucks. They have tea. And you could take ladies. And we should have a motorcycle ministry. Really? I don't even know what that is. Yeah, we're going to all meet together and we're going to go ride. And we're, then we're, I'm like, why do you need to have a ministry to do that? Just get some dudes and go ride around. You can even meet in the parking lot if you want. You don't need me to label that a ministry and organize it. and Just go, just go do it. And, and sometimes people get real committed to, to a method. Well, I went to this church and our method for reaching kids was Awanas. So we need to have Awanas. You know what? That's great. There's nothing wrong with that. My kids have gone to Awanas. There are great churches that have Awanas. But that, that's, a, that's a method. And here's what happens. People, they, they, get, they get committed to a method instead of the message. And it becomes a sacred thing. See, our mission is to lead people from where they are to where God wants them to be. Yeah, well, uh, what about the message of repentance and the forgiveness of sins in Jesus' name? Are you committed to that message at all? Just, you know, wondering there, Mike. The mission is what's sacred. The methods will probably change. I mean, we, 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 right, we have a you know, style of music. What if we just decided one day that it was better to reach people with a different style of music and we changed it? Some people would be like, well, I, I, you're sold out to the methods, not to the mission. Well, we used to do it like this. Yeah, we changed it because we've, we realized we could accomplish our mission better if we changed it. And you're committed to the methods, but not to the mission. See, the mission is sacred. The mission doesn't change. The methods change all the time. All right. That's why this sermon isn't in Latin, by the way. All right, number nine. Uh, leaders are learners. Leaders are learners. People always say it's best to uh, learn by experience. You ever heard somebody say that? It's best to learn by experience. I disagree with that. I think it's best to learn by someone else's experience. Like if you go out in the street and some dude gets hit by a car in the parking lot, you would be like, that looks like it hurt. <laughs> I don't need to experience that. <laughs> I'll just won't cross the street right there. I'll go down to the crosswalk, right? I'd rather learn from their experience. I'd rather watch you. Met, like, like people that do drugs and are all strung out. They're like, I was in drugs. I dealt drugs. And I did drugs. And I wrecked my life. I'm like, yeah, oh, yeah. Thank you for teaching me that valuable lesson. I don't need to experience that for myself. You're a great teacher. Good job. You really wrecked your life. All right, good. Thank you. Right? I don't need to experience that. I'll just, I'll just let someone else experience and I'll learn from their experience. You can learn from someone else's experience. In fact, I think that's better than learning from your own experience. Let them make the mistakes. Learn from their mistakes. You can learn from someone else's experience. However, you cannot lead from someone else's experience. In order to be a leader, you have to take people where you've already been. Like I can't stand up here and, and, and speak on God's behalf to you if God hasn't spoken first to me. I can't, I can't preach someone else's sermons. I mean, I know I could download them off the internet and go to yahoosermons.com. Could you preach God's word? You ever heard of that? .com or whatever and get a couple. Or is that just, you know, one of those, you know, methods? Get some sermons and be like, well, here's what you need. That, that's weak. There are pastors that do that. And they're, you know, I appreciate you teaching us how not to preach. Nice that we got to learn from your leadership there. Lame. That's weak because they're not here. They're not putting the hard work in to hear from God in order to stand up and communicate on God's behalf. You can't lead out of someone else's experience. You've got, you've got to lead out of your own experience. You've got to be a learner. And here's the thing about learning. It's so easy to learn now. I mean, they have the internet. I say they, like who's, who is, who are these they? And they, they, there's the internet. I mean, you get books, you know, books, right? They have books. 
You guys know what I'm talking about? You're like, wow, books. I went to this church one time and he talked about books. Yeah, there, there are books. You can go to a store that sells them. It's called a book store. And on any topic you want, there are smart people that have written stuff down. You don't even have to go to a bookstore. You can go to this aforementioned internet, type in the name of the book you're, you're, you're wanting, and they will mail it to you. It's amazing. You want to know how to do something? Get a book and read it. Take a class. Ask somebody. There, there are an insane amount of resources available for you to become an expert at anything you want to become an expert at. And we're talking about Christian leadership. Let me tell you the best book to read. Read the Bible. Like, what would Jesus do? That's, that's a really lame t-shirt and bracelet. You, you don't need to put that on your shirt. You can actually read, what would Jesus do? Why don't you just read what he did? And then go try to do those things. Hmm, I wonder what Paul would do in this situation. Read about what he said. You want to be a I know. How about you preach and tell us what Jesus did? That, that is your job, of course. Unless, of course, that's just a method that's optional. A leader, read the Bible. L- l- read, uh, you know, read people. Notice he's talking about the Bible, but not telling you what's in the Bible. Barely. I mean, he's done a little bit of it. <sighs> Talk to smart people. Talk to smart people. I'm amazed. I'm amazed that sometimes we get advice from people. Like I go to Walmart sometimes for entertainment purposes, and you go by the by the uh, the magazine, and there's all these magazines and people writing in advice, like how to get a guy to notice you in five easy steps. And, and sometimes I flip through these magazines because they're very entertaining, and they have these advice columns. You know, they ask somebody, and people write in with their problems. They're like, here's what you know, I, my guy cheated on me. Should I break up with him? And they like write this and this whole big long thing. And 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 it, the advice is from usually from some weirdo. Like relationship advice, this person's been divorced four times. They're giving somebody advice. Well, here's what I would do. Well, that's exactly not what you should do, but thanks for sharing. And, and we get all these advice from people. And if you're writing in to like magazine people to get advice, you have way- This definitely qualifies as a good advice sermon, but no good news. Um, will we get a real gospel nugget? That's the question at this point as we're getting close to the end of the sermon. Will Christ and him crucified for our sins make an appearance here? We are up to number eight. We have nine and ten left on his ten-point sermon. Hmm. Way bigger problems, but that's a whole other deal. But but there are smart people you can talk to. You know? Like, really, if you're running a business and you want to know how to run your business better, why don't you find somebody who's running a business better than you and go ask them some questions? Oh, man. Uh, what does this have to do with the Bible again there, Michael? Just, you know, wondering... I mean, I learned this all from my MBA. Uh, you're not telling me anything new. And in fact, there's probably people in the audience at your church who might have a lot more business experience than you do and more leadership experience than you do. And I'm sure they're just as exasperated by what you're saying as I am. Like, I want to be a better Christian. Go find someone who's a better Christian. It's really not that hard. Look around and, and ask them some questions. Well, I don't understand the Bible. Find somebody who understands the Bible a little bit and say, hey, man, what does this mean? How about uh, you tell them? That's supposed to be your job, Pastor Mike. (sighs) By the way, I just want to remind everybody, the name of this sermon series is God at the Movies. And the sermon is entitled The Dark Knight, Lessons for the Reluctant Leader. Just wanted to point it out because it's hilarious the fact that this is supposedly a, a movie sermon. <laughs> I mean, just add, just become a better person. Six, uh, six or seven weeks ago, I said, man, I got I to keep learning. So I enrolled. Just become a better person. 
oh, you don't know what the Bible says at all. You need to step down from the from whatever it is you call that thing. If it's a pulpit or a podium or a I don't know a music stand, whatever you're using to you know, to hold up your sermon notes, you need to step away and let somebody who actually knows how to preach do it because you this is not preaching. Rolled at a, a seminary class. I'm studying Old Testament right now. I'm watching a guy in suit, ties, giving lectures on the Old Testament. I'm taking notes. I had a test last week. I mean, why? Not because I'm bored. Any chance you could teach any of that to the people in your congregation? You know, because seminary is not about personal edification. Just a thought. But because I want to continue to learn. Like, well, I'd like to know the Bible better. So I'm going to take a, a class. There are things that you can do. And I'm, this is not even just true for Christianity, although this is primarily what we're talking about. Any area of life, become a learner, become a student. Take an hour a day and practice. Funny you would say that because a disciple is a learner. And Jesus said, go and make disciples. Not learners of just anything like leadership, but teaching them everything that Christ has commanded. Ah, man, just uh, missing the forest because of the tree here. Practice whatever you want to get good at. Be a learner. Listen to Proverbs eleven fourteen. Without wise leadership, a nation fails, but there is safety in having many advisors. Get some smart people together and ask them some questions. You know, we, pull our, our, we have very smart people that work at this church, the staff of our church. I'm always asking them questions. I meet with some, some people, some business leaders and some smart people and some good Christians in our church that they're not on staff. They're just good, smart people. And I say, hey, man, here's what I'm thinking about. What do you think? Ask questions. You'll be a better leader. All right, last one, and then we're done. Number- Praise the Lord. Number 10. This is also a key one, I think. Leaders work hard. Leaders work hard. Oh, duh. <laughs> Wah, wah, wah. Thanks for playing. Uh, we have some lovely parting gifts for you. Now, if you're like under the age of like, know, like 22, this is you're going to be like, no, all. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Leaders work real hard. Leaders work hard. I wrote this down. There's no shortcut to greatness. Uh, greatness. Um, hmm. How are you defining that? I bet it's not according to the way Christ would define it. Just a hint. Just a thing in my mind. See, we live in this like reality TV, like I just, you know, just pop somebody becomes famous and all of a sudden everybody's talking about them. Just, but that doesn't usually work that way. People that usually make something of their life, they work really hard. Listen to what Oswald Sanders said. How hard did you work on digging out, uh, the really digging into the Bible to bring us these ten points here? If he is not willing or she is not willing to rise earlier and stay up later than others, to work harder and study more diligently than his contemporaries, he will not greatly impress his generation. You know what he's saying? It's like, hey man, if you're not willing to work... You're not going to make it. This is a untalked about secret of leadership. You can have principles and all this stuff. And, you know, people talk about all these random things. that don't make. You know what? The secret to, 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 to leadership. By the way, why is this sermon called the reluctant leader? Just, you know. An advancement. Oh, maybe because of the ever small, so microscopic tie into the dark night. Did I mention that this is called Summer? God at the Movies, uh, this is supposedly on the Dark Knight. Did I mention that part? <laughs> is, is working hard. It's working hard. Hey, you, you work at a job? You, let's say you work at a restaurant. Uh-huh. You want to get a promotion? Yeah. yeah. 
Don't get there on time. Get there early. Great advice. Um, that's fine advice. Uh, what about the good news? Uh, that's really the thing you're supposed to be doing. You do that for a, a period of time, I guarantee you that will be noticed. You work harder than other people. Great advice. Again, what about the good news of Jesus Christ crucified for our sins? Do you have anything there for me? How come I keep getting passed over for a promotion? I'm doing my job. That's the problem. You're doing your job. You have to do more than your job. You have to do better than your job. I want to be a good Christian, man. I tried to read the Bible and it didn't make any sense. You got to keep trying, man. You got to keep pushing through. You what about, oh, man. You have to work hard. Great leaders, they don't make excuses. They make things better. All right, you ever, you, ever, you ever done like a group project, maybe at work or at school and college, you had a group project. There's always like two or three like people in the group dragging the group down. You know, they never show up to the meetings and do their part of the thing. And, and you know, but then, then there's always one or two like overachievers that rise above and they make up for it. Yeah, I'm not detecting that you're an overachiever in the area of Bible exegetical work and expository sermons. Guess who gets ahead most of the time? The people that work hard. One of the things that irritates me, I, I call it Christian laziness. Christian laziness. It's just maybe you have it. Pastoral laziness. Just, you know, thinking. The people that do nothing and pray and ask God to bless it. You know? Like they're just lazy. People are just lazy. But they pray and they ask God. And they think God will just miraculously make up for it. That's Christian laziness. Uh -huh. God, God gave you hands. God gave you feet. Yeah, God gave you a Bible. Open it up and start preaching from it. Don't be lazy. Weak leaders, they blame other people when stuff goes wrong. Have you noticed that? You know? Politicians, well, I'd fix this, but the guy before me screwed it up for years and years and years. Yeah, that's weak. That's weak. You fix it. That's why we voted for you. You fix it. Weak bosses. Well, our company's not ahead because we don't have good employees. Well, you're their leader. And uh, wh why do I need a crucified and risen Savior for this again? Oh, wait, I don't. You know, don't make excuses. Make, make things better. Work hard. Be willing to work hard. All uh, No gospel so far. Not even a gospel nugget. I mean... Let me tell you one of the things that fuels this church. This uh, okay, could it possibly be the gospel? Christ Jesus? You know, forgiveness of sins? That? This fuels this church. Because I know it would be real easy to come and think, man, this church is about, they got lights and a dude on a stage and there's a band and it's the music. It's not about that at all. You know what fuels this church? Leaders. Leaders. And not even Christ. Leaders fuel the church. <sighs> Boy. In, in all areas. There, there are leaders right now upstairs, over there, and over there, and back there, working with your children. They're not babysitting. They are leading your children. There, there are people up on the stage, and they are, they are doing things, and they're practicing, and they're working hard. And what are they doing? They're trying to, they're trying to lead us in worship. A couple of weeks ago, uh, three, I think it was three weeks ago, I was really sick. I had Saturday night service, and as soon as the Saturday night service was over, I got nauseous. And I was like, I just was, felt horrible. So I went home, I went to bed, and I knew I had two more services in the morning. And, uh, man, I, got, I was like up at 2 o'clock, 3 o'clock, 4 o'clock, throwing up. I know this is a great story, right? But like, I want you to picture this, right? All right. Anyway, um, so I'm just sick. And I, the whole time I'm like, man, I got to go to – I got I to gotta do this two more times tomorrow, and I'm not going to make it. And so I, I drove in sick. I, I, like, had the thing of Maalox in my, in my car, and I brought it in and sat on my desk. I'm just drinking it every, like <laughs> – 
Uh, if you were to, you know, have one of those scales, you know, the kind with the two pans on either side, and it kind of, they kind of balance. And if you were to put in, um, let's say, every time this guy talked about himself, you know, that weighed a pound. And every time he talked about Jesus, that weighed a pound. And then you put them on the different sides of the scale. Uh, do you think that uh, the scale would tip in favor of Jesus or Pastor Mike? Just wondering. But, you know, you know, it's funny because when we were reading in Acts today... Uh, the disciples, they seem to be obsessed with talking about Jesus and were witnesses about Jesus. And and all they were teaching was about Jesus. I, well, Pastor Mike seems to be, um, um, well, Jesus made a cameo, a leadership appearance in the sermon. But he's not really into teaching about him. He's really talking about himself. Because uh, that's what he's apparently learning to do in seminary. I says like every four hours, or like every hour, I was like, you know, with the mailbox, because I didn't want to throw up on the stage. I thought that would be bad. Um, and and I, and I, it was in between the first and the second service, I think it was on Sunday, and I was just feeling awful, and I was trying to fake feeling good, you know, go out there, and I'd be like, oh. And I went in my, I went in my office, and I and I turned on my computer. Well, my computer's already on. My computer was on, and I, I I turned on Twitter. I don't know if you guys know what Twitter is. It's a uh, waste of time, and it's like where people from their cell phone they're like, I just ate lunch, and they tell the whole world, and everybody's like, Wow, oh, what'd you have? And it's you know, it's just really ridiculous, and it's a complete waste of time. But I, I turned on Twitter, and because I always tell people those things too, and and I and I looked on there, and and they knew I I said earlier in the day that I wasn't really feeling well, and I looked on there, and Tommy Pasco, who is a lead volunteer in charge of the parking team at one of the services he, he's on twitter and he said um he said um the parking guys all just prayed for you we got your back and um and i know you're like and immediately i felt better no i still felt sick i was like got more maylocks and drank it uh and so like there wasn't like this miracle like where i felt better but i came back out and i went back in the little green room i came out and i did and i'm telling you you're not gonna, you may not understand this but being able to stand up here and talk to you guys and teach God's word with the confidence of knowing that those guys don't park cars, but they lead spiritually. Just let me get, just help me get, get it through there. That those people up there, they don't watch babies, they lead. That, that these people don't play guitars and drums and sing songs. They serve Jesus and they lead. Really, uh, how about you? How do, your job as a pastor, as far as serving Jesus is concerned, is to, you know, actually preach and teach about him. Yeah, I'm just wondering, uh, have you really led us in a, a deeper understanding of Christ and Him crucified and witness to Him and His resurrection? You know, things like that. You know. And say so we, we don't we don't do tasks around here. Everything we do, it fits together with the whole thing, and that's why we do what we do. Nobody comes up here and like, well, I don't got anything to do. I'm bored. What can I? Do? Yeah, talk about focusing on the wrong thing, boy. You sure do understand a lot about leadership, there, dude. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. You know, nobody can touch you and your leadership knowledge, pastor. Uh, you might want to get back to the thing you're supposed to be doing. I do. No, no, no. They realize that by parking cars and by saying hi and by making popcorn and by setting up chairs and long after you're gone by staying here and cleaning up and locking doors and doing things that you never see because they're all behind the scenes that they are leading. Here's what I want to do. I want to I want to say a, a prayer 
and then we'll we'll uh, we'll be done. So you can go ahead and fold all your stuff up. And yeah, and- we're done. Okay. So there it was in all of its forty-one-minute uh, glory, uh, a ten-point sermon on leadership that was from a sermon series called "God at the Movies." <laughs> This is supposedly a Dark Knight servant. <laughs> I love it. He didn't even do it right. Going with the seeker-sensitive method, and he completely biffed it on both Bible and relevant theme. That's just too funny. Uh, yeah, but this is what's become of Christian preaching. If... um. You don't laugh, you're going to cry. And one of the reasons why we point this out here at Fighting for the Faith is, number one, to show you that this type of preaching does not fulfill the job that Christ has given pastors to do. And if you're attending a church like this, it's time to leave. Time for you to get out of the kiddie pool and find a church where you are going to hear Sunday after Sunday about Christ and what he has done for you, specifically died on the cross for your sins. You need to hear the gospel and you need to hear it Sunday after Sunday. It's time for you to get out of this kind of church and grow up. This isn't even good youth ministry, let alone adult ministry. And you men out there listening to me, if you even have the remotest inclination towards considering becoming a pastor or a teacher in the church who will do the work of digging into God's word and pointing us to Christ from all passages of scripture. May I encourage you to pursue that, to pursue that education, study and show yourself approved as a workman who need not blush blush with embarrassment, but as one who can rightly divide and handle God's word. We need men who will step up into the pulpits and feed God's sheep and get rid of these schlocky hirelings, uh, these uh, goat herders who think they're doing Christian ministry and replace them with real Bible teachers, real teachers who will actually really teach what God's word says and focus on Christ and him crucified and show us Christ from all of scripture. May I encourage you, admonish you to pursue the teaching ministry beginning first with your family. That's where I learned how to teach God's word was at a dinner table teaching two and three-year-olds. Believe it or not, that's a great place to begin practicing teaching God's word. Plus, as the head and pastor of your family, that's really what you should be doing. Anyway, need to remind you, Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means your financial support is vital for us to continue bringing Fighting for the Faith to you. Now, our, our, our annual budget is not very huge. In fact, it's, it's less than you know $70,000 a year. However, uh, we're not pulling that in in donations, and so... I have to uh, remind you 
uh, over and over again that uh, this is listener-supported radio. Please consider supporting us, and do more than consider. Please support us so that we can continue bringing this vital outreach to you. And the good news is by supporting Fighting for the Faith, you're actually supporting the greater cause of Pirate Christian Radio. And so you can support us a couple of ways. You can visit FightingForTheFaith.com and click on one of our friendly yellow donate buttons. That allows you to send your gift in online securely using your credit card. Or you can uh, visit uh, or you can make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and send it to Post Office Box 508, Fishers, Indiana, zip code 46038. Well, sadly, we are at the end of another edition of Fighting for the Faith. And like always, I would like to remind you that uh, I'd love to get your email. I read them all, and I do not even remotely have the ability to respond to them all on the air. However, if you would like to email me and uh, comment on anything you've heard on any edition of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so at talkback at fightingforthefaith.com. That's talkback at fightingforthefaith.com. Or you can uh, ask to be my friend on Facebook or follow me on Twitter. My name there at Twitter is Pirate Christian. Until tomorrow, may the Lord richly bless you in the grace and mercy of Christ won for you on the cross. Amen. <laughs>